again. Um, should we revisit that? Yeah, man. Whatever you want. Well, I mean, what? Nobody knows what it is. Yeah, right. That's, that's right. Okay. I mean, there there is. You know, we use uh, we use mostly cool rock tunes as our regular bumpers coming back in. But you're talking about for the show. Intro. When we go on the air, yeah. it's the same thing every single morning. Right. I've never asked because it doesn't concern me very much. But today, I'm asking. So what, it's almost a theme song <laughs> just because of the, the nature is played before every show but wouldn't it make sense to know why it's our theme song yeah i mean if kato just liked it did kato have the <laughs> ultimate authority to well what? To, to just i don't know to own the opening moments I of the guess show so. yeah put it in there okay. until somebody said something well, I mean, else what, what if freehold doesn't like it does freehold take i mean does he have um carte blanche on of course he does okay good deal so kato if you want to put something else on there i mean excuse freehold. me freehold if you want to put something else on there then um, have at it. 843 669 I'm going to find, find out what that song is. It's a pretty cool song. And it's okay. Um, 843 Now we just found out what this is all about. You just now decided three years later you don't like the uh, I mean, opening I, I theme I don't music. dislike it. I don't know that I like it. I don't know that I, that I dislike it. I don't know that it's very memorable. Right. And I do believe that Limbaugh, I mean, obviously there was some creativity put in play. When Limbaugh said this would be, I mean, I, I would imagine he liked the song and there was something about the song that motivated him to put it on the, um, as the opening and it became part of, part of his, um, his shtick, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, so do you want to talk Braves or racing? Braves had a good weekend, right? Went three or four against yeah. the Nationals. Yeah. I'm um, lost yesterday, but the Mets lost as well. So the game of the lead is what, still two and a half two games? Two and a half, I think. Three in the lost column. Um, but, but I think you've been, a, you, you've been convinced now that the Mets are legit. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, they, they, they are a legit baseball team. <laughs> and without the, the top pitcher. You well, I mean, know? The, the Braves are playing 600 baseball and three games out of the lost column at the All-Star break. That's all you need to know. Uh, you can have a week or two or three, but, but the, the the Braves are, I think, 600-ish, uh, 598, 602. I think one, yesterday they were probably above 600 today. They may be a game below 600. Um, 600 is a good winning streak. I mean, that's... Uh, 666 is two out of three, and you ain't going to win two out of three year long. The Yankees have, have, have slowed down. I mean, I don't want to say they've, they're still playing about 700 baseball, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but, um, but, but the Braves have had as good a streak as I can ever remember the Braves having, and they're still two and a half games out of first place, three in the loss column. The Mets are legit. And if DeGrom comes back and joins Scherzer, it is going to be a pennant race, which will be a lot of fun if you're a Braves fan. Of the Braves and Mets down the stretch trying to decide who wins the National League East. We can go to racing. You said you watched the, the car race yesterday. Yeah, watch um, watch, uh, yeah, I watched Chase Elliott. I think of you, and he. Uh, I guess he came in second. So see, I'm a little bad. bit, I'm a bit, little bit perplexed with Chase Elliott. I pulled for Fords growing up, right? Uh, because Bill Elliott drove a Ford, and my father-in-law worked at the Ford dealership. Um, I'm a little bit more neutral now. I've got a good buddy who owns a Chevrolet dealership, King Cadillac Buick GMC, or a sponsor of this team. So I pull for the American brands. I pull for the uh, Fords and Chevys over the Toyota. And I can hear somebody now saying, well, there are more Toyotas made in America than there are Fords or, <laughs> or Chevrolets. It's an international global market is all I'll say. Um, but yeah, Chase has been, I think, the last four races, first, second, first, second. Um, as we say in the country, that's getting it done. I mean, that's getting it done in four consecutive races, first, second, first, um, second, driving a Chevrolet. 
you know, and um, but I was his watching, father famously made the fourth Thunderbird. Uh, when I was watching, and I was watching a little bit of the after-race interview with Chase, I just kept thinking about, I didn't see last week when you said he was talking about why his parents didn't come to the race in Atlanta. Yeah. For, for those who didn't hear last week, Chase, Chase won the so race real. in Atlanta. His family's from Dawsonville. Remember the old Mon- awesome Bill from Dawsonville was kind of the way, uh, and that's back in the glory days, what I call the good old days of NASCAR, the best days NASCAR's ever seen before it went and got woke. Um, interesting now, um, how many gun manufacturers do you see on race cars? From what I've gathered, NASCAR has excluded mm-hmm. gun manufacturers from being sponsors. Um, in other words, Smith & Wesson or uh, Remington or Browning or or some of these other companies are not allowed to, to sponsor. But back in the good old days of racing, um, you had st- just just uh, fans everywhere and television ratings through the roof. Um, I don't have any idea why that's not the case now. But yeah, Chase was racing in Atlanta and his, um, his mother and father live in Dawsonville, Blairsville, in that general area. It's what, 45 minutes, maybe an hour outside of this it wouldn't be a suburb of atlanta but it's in the atlanta region um and chase said after the race he said i want to thank all of his sponsors and his team owner and blah 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 i want to thank mom and dad for all they've done he said i can remember riding this track driving on the quarter mile and he looked and saw this big track over here and he thought it was always just unreachable you know unreachable unattainable and he said i want to thank mom and dad um mama wanted to come but daddy said it looked like it might rain (laughs) Just love that, <laughs> and I, you know, that's, that's just a guy that's been in the racetrack a million times and looking for an excuse to not go the million and first time. <laughs> um, getting old is, I think, what we uh, what we call but, but that. I, I will say, uh, watching the race made me get a little bit excited because we are close to Southern Five Hundred time. We here, are here in our area. So, how many weekends do we have now between? Because Southern Five Hundred is not just. Um, I mean, it's Labor Day weekend. It's a long weekend. It's, the, it's kind of the end of summer. I know it's not the official calendar end of the summer but um it's the it's the race it's college football it's high school football it's a lot of other things uh that that are kind of woven into the fabric of the deep south and yeah um kale yarborough said uh not recently but when he got inducted into the uh, nascar hall of fame kale yarborough said that when he found out the race was not going to be in darlington on labor day he just thought that labor day was going away (laughs) <laughs> he just said so they're so they're doing away with labor day weekend no they're doing away with the race on labor day weekend kale we're still having labor day weekend but he said yeah but i just thought that you know the only reason it was labor day is because we raced in darlington uh and, and for a long time it was on the monday it was actually on labor day and then they backed that up to the sunday to give um the hayseeds a day to recover and uh, the rabble rousers a day uh, to recover we can talk about a lot of different things this morning um, i've got some interesting polling information um, i've got some information about trump and DeSantis that i think you'll find interesting uh, my daughter is supposed to leave friday not not ironclad not set in stone yet but um there's a pretty good chance she's going to the um turning points national committee meeting in nice. florida um speakers will be donald trump ron DeSantis, candace owens and she's jacked. I mean, she's really excited about going down because it centers around young Republican leadership. Uh, from what I'm gathering, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 1,000 young Republicans going to this national convention and, um, and turning points. I think Candace Owens may be on the board. 
Um, and obviously, DeSantis would be someone who would be interested in garnering the support of young Republicans. Um, Trump is still the 800-pound gorilla in Republican politics. But um, she'll know. I said, I asked her last, I said, so when do you know for sure? She said, by today, Monday or Tuesday, um, she'll know for sure whether they're going. And she'd, she'd go as a, um, a guest of Trafalgar. I told her she's doing a paid internship, uh, not with a polling company, but with a polling company, excuse me, with a company to get paid to provide <laughs> right. accurate information. Uh, right. No longer a polling company. <laughs> and I've got it figured out. I think Robert has, um, has, has studied this up one side and down the other, is convinced that polling, you can charge only this much. If you provide accurate information to people willing to pay, you can charge, uh, you know, a little more. So um, th- there's another charge. The branding and marketing. Or, or a I'm premium charge. Yeah, polling is one price. If you want um, accurate information, then th- there's another price. And, uh, and the pollster is only as good as his accurate information. And right now, Robert has a pretty good reputation of providing accurate information, um, not necessarily to the candidates. I mean, the majority of work he's doing today is not for the candidates. It's for some of the uh, some of the special interest groups, and um, you know the the Chamber of Commerce needs to know. The American Manufacturing Association um, needs to know. Got a couple of um, of data points here. I'm going to touch on this morning. Got several stories that I've um, kept up with. One's a holdover. Actually, two are a holdover didn't, from last week. Weren't you going to go down a list of the things you kind of been working on? And yeah, let, let's let do me, that. Let's and do let that. me hear. Okay, I mean, here, let let me, let's do this. Let me help choose the direction here. Remember, we talked about that no, Friday. I forgot about that. I that, if I open that door, you would never. Well, you know, you said it Friday yeah. like it was going to be something from now on, and then that would just last a one day. Okay, you ready? Yeah. No one wants to join the military anymore. Hmm. Demand exhaustion. Talking about home prices. Arizona is just the beginning for universal school choice. Hispanic voters on the move. Uh, where the American people refuse to be told what to believe uh, and do, it gets chaotic. And lastly, uh, hold on, I got this on this other sheet of paper, but I knew I had one more. Um, about- I got a right track, wrong track number, and then I've got a um, Republican association political action committee there will never there will no i don't think the the lincoln the lincoln project knows it has a problem with pedophilia so if you if your problem uh, is pedophilia you probably need to reassociate and yeah, rebrand and find another um but but no uh, intentionally or not i mean that there, there's another i've got this listed on the uh this is number one this morning intentionally or not and uh, you and I were having a conversation before the break, mm-hmm. and you said that you pondered yeah. one of the subjects we talked going about over the weekend. Going back to Friday. So, so there, there's about eight or nine yep. subjects. Well, where's your head at this morning, Royal Rev of Radio? Well, just uh, because it's something that was a little bit on my mind, uh, I would think the uh, uh, what you were talking about here uh, from Friday we just mentioned. Okay. Yep. So, so you're talking about. The three well, business you, you, owners, three business people. Why that did you, that interest you? Well, I mean, you, you said this morning that that interested you. Um, Friday, I discussed uh, at great length the conversation I had. I had a conversation. I had multiple conversations on Thursday. I talked with the guy in the manufacturing business. I talked with the guy. And I, I leveled with him. And the guy in the manufacturing business is my brother. So I had to call my brother about an issue. He and I still have some mutual interest. I called my brother about something, and then I called a friend of mine who's in the auto man, excuse me, the auto sales business. He owns a dealership. I mean, he owns an auto dealership. And then I called another buddy of mine who's in the restaurant business, hospitality related. So I got a, a brother in manufacturing, a really good friend that I grew up with in the auto. Um, he actually owns an auto dealership. And then I've got another uh, friend who's in the um, deeply involved and um, longtime success in the hospitality 
sector. And we talked about their um, their plot. We talked a lot about their discouragement. I mean, how, on its surface, when you say that, that people like that who have generally been very successful are having trouble figuring out how to make a dollar now. And, you know, I, I thought about the obvious reasons. I mean, inflation, all the associated costs that are getting higher for everything we do. But I, but I wanted to think a little bit deeper. You know, is there, you know, why why are we here? I mean, is this something that is, as you said, intentional or not? And that's the that's the conversation I want to have this morning with as many people who are willing to, to participate. And the one thing we said Friday that I'll repeat again, um, if I wish we did a better job at anything, I mean, we do the best we can. I mean, some days I think we do a good job. Some days we leave a lot to be desired. Um, but I wish we could convince more of you it's worth participating um in the first person in other words you hear the conversations that we have with our callers you enjoy the product enjoy the show um you're passionate about american politics but you've never been spurred uh, along enough to call and in the first person give your opinion tell us what you think and i have no idea what motivates people to call or not i mean i really and truly don't um but when we talked about the issue last week, um, you and I had a conversation off the air, and then I, I responded to the three business owners about whether they believe this is intentional or not. I mean, they are they are very discouraged. They're despondent. I mean, they, they are, I hate to say this, but I think they'd quit today if they could. I mean, I really believe that. I think the guy that owns the dealership would quit tomorrow if he could. Um, but he likes going on trips, and he likes riding his boat, and he likes doing things that do what? Cause money. I mean, I, I can speak for my brother. Um, he likes making money. I mean, he likes running the business. But And the guy in the hospitality business, he's been in it 25 or 30 years and done extremely well. And I said Thursday or said Friday morning, these three people don't know how to go to work and make money. They, they, they all three said it in, in a little bit unique ways, but they all said about the same things. Um, I've screwed up a bunch of, I'm paraphrasing here. I've screwed up a bunch of things in my life, but the one thing I always thought I could do is come to work and make money. And I don't know how to do it now. I mean, I always thought I could squeeze a profit out no matter what came my way. Not sure I understand now in manufacturing, the auto industry or hospitality. I don't know that I understand what to do next. I don't know where to go from here. I can't make money anymore. And if I'm not making money, why am I running the business? Um, they were talking about some of their personal savings. They've reinvested in their business to keep it afloat since COVID came along. And and, and the point we're trying to make here this morning, and I want to elaborate on this conversation because I think it's probably the most interesting part of this dynamic. Is it intentional or not? So the three people that I spoke with Thursday, I followed with up, followed up with over the weekend, heard back from two. Strangely, my brother was the only one that didn't <laughs> respond to the messages. But it was, um, do you believe it's intentional or not? I mean, I get your discouragement. I get how frustrated you are. I get um, the fact that you believe um, the government has made it far more complicated for you to make money, for you to run your business than you ever imagined it would. But do you believe it's intentional or not? And here's the responses I got back. To begin with, no. Now, yes. I mean, to begin with, no, I mean, I, I, you, you, there's no way the most conservative, aggressive talk radio show host could have never convinced me you know, five or 10 years ago that the government was intentionally making it complicated for me to run my business or more complicated. I mean, we've always known that there's a complication there. It's this rub. 
you know, the government has with business, business has has with government. These are not conspiracy theorists. They're turning into conspiracy theorists. I mean, I'll say this. These are three normal, average, um, successful business guys. All three now believe that the government, I can't speak for all three, two of the three that responded believe the government is now intentionally trying to make it complicated or more complicated than it should be for them to run their business. So here's the follow-up. Why? You asked that a second ago. Yep. Why would the government intentionally make it more complicated? Because the government has a motive, and their motivations are not what is in the public best interest. What are the donors saying? What do the donors want? I mean, do you believe the local hardware store is more inclined to make a political contribution than Home Depot or Lowe's? Do you, do you believe the local diner is more inclined to make a, uh, a campaign contribution than a national chain of restaurants? I mean, I'll let you stew on that for a second. We've done multiple shows about public policy and public opinion. I mean, public opinion does not affect public policy much at all. It should, but it doesn't. The majority of public policy comes from those who pay for a certain outcome. That's just the cold, hard Truth. I want to hold on to this thought for a second. I don't want to get too far behind this morning, but I've got a right track, wrong track number, and then I've got an ancillary number that I think feeds into that right, right track, wrong track that kind of plays into the narrative of three business owners. Now, once again, this is anecdotal, but I got to believe that these three people feel this way. There are millions and millions and millions of other small business owners who feel almost the same. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. <laughs> and, and, and as we go to break here, the only other thing I hope we talk about this morning is that uh, our president, again, tried to shake hands with the air over the weekend. Yeah, we saw that. Yeah. But he did fist bump a killer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 843-661-0937. Back in just a minute. 843 is our number. Does that bumper music meet more with your approval well, I mean, right there? That's a familiar beat, yeah. Right. I mean, I, the first did not meet my approval. I mean, okay. I'm not here to approve or disapprove of anything <laughs> first thing Monday morning. I just I thought about it when it started. I said, okay, when did we decide that that's how we go on the air every single day? No, I mean, I'm not saying I like it or don't like it. Did we put any thought into it? I know who didn't. I know who was not asked or inquired uh, as to whether that's the way we should go on the air every morning. I still think you don't like it. I think this is the way you're getting around to, you know, saying, I don't like that. I kind of don't. See? I kind of don't. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. DW joins us now. ADW. Hey, guys. What's going on? ADW. Hey, man. Uh, you're talking about businesses, and I'm talking about the retail end. We can't get inventory in the building before we've ordered it. It's supposed to be shipped to us. By the time it gets to us, it's already increased uh, 10%, 15% from the time you buy it to the time it comes in uh, two months, three months, four months, six months later. And you look around going, well, how in the world are we doing this? And you talk to the manufacturer. The manufacturer tells you, well, gosh, they increased us X amount of dollars percentage-wise for everything we have to send to you, so we got to pass it on to you. And you look back, and they're telling you, they haven't passed it on because the government's regulations are killing them because they tax them on everything else, uh, either make it so hard for them to get what they need. They can't get it in. By the time they get in, they've charged them 15% more than they said they were going to charge them. And you can't say, well, I'm not going to take it because you told me you're going to pay this price. If you tell them that, they go, well, that's fine. You won't get any. So you either pay it or you don't. That's the government. I don't think it's the people. I think the people know they can't eat everything that comes along. So they've got to pass it on because these regulations are so tight, you know, 
travel for trucks and transportation from everywhere and uh, just trying to find a product, trying to find somebody to come to work. Good golly. Uh, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And the government's caused this. They let COVID come in, and COVID was a, a – gosh, it's not a conspiracy theorist. They let COVID come in and change this country. I mean, they took it and used it as a force to change this country. And last two and a half years, you're talking about your brother and, and the other two guys you know. I guarantee you they tell you the same thing. Ever since COVID's been here, government's got their hands in everything, and everything's gone up, and it's doing it to put us in a place of control. It's, it's a shame it's that way. You know, we need to we need to harden up and, and do a lot better job of what we're doing instead of just sitting there and going, well, maybe the next set will do it for us. Uh, no, we need to make a lot more changes in our lives and a lot harder on, on the government because they're supposed to be working for us. We're not supposed to work for them. That's what it is right now. So that's my piece. Thank you, DW. No, but that sounds just like the three people I spoke with Thursday. And for those just joining, I recounted um, conversations I had Thursday with three business owners who were talking about today's struggle. And I mean, it was complicated before COVID. I mean, I don't remember a year in business that regulations got less intrusive or less demanding or, or less restrictive. I mean, seriously, I was in a business for all of my adult life. So I got, went off to Wofford in 82. I stayed a year in the summer, excuse me, a semester in the summer, came back in 83, went to work in the family business, sold my part in 2008. From 83 to 2008, I don't ever remember a year that we had less regulation, less intrusion, less involvement by the government. I mean, it was the EPA, it was DHEC, it was OSHA, it was some other regulatory agency. And, um, and I just thought my dad was a grumpy old man uh, until I became responsible for dealing and managing some of the business's affairs and its interactions with government. But, but, and here we go to COVID, and I think DW raised a very interesting point. Um, there are some of you out there who believe that COVID was the opportunity they saw to really control everybody's life. I saw someone swim in the ocean this weekend with a mask on. I mean, I did. I saw someone really? not swimming, but kind of wading around in the, in the ocean about chest deep with a mask on. No mm. idea who they were, where they're from. Um, and they may have some medical complications, some immune um, deficiency that leads them or immunodeficiency that leads them to believe, you know, they got to be careful out there. But uh, it's just it's so bizarre to me. And I think when you start down the road of uh, did they intentionally do this? Rev said, why? I mean, why would they intentionally do this? Market share. I mean, Home Depot doesn't want a lot of the home uh, the home building business. They want it all. Lowe's doesn't want uh, 27% or 38%, whatever they've got. They want it all. And, and I think when mom and pop have, you know, a business here and a business there, and that business has a, a certain percentage of the revenue or a certain percentage of the marketplace, um, the government, when, when the big businesses lobby the government, they're not lobbying the government to do the right thing. But that's one thing you guys have to get um, comfortable with. When the big businesses, um, what do we say about how much money was Walmart and, and Amazon spending during COVID? I mean, it was a million dollars a week that they were lobbying the federal government. I mean, do you think they're lobbying the government to get policy that allows everybody to stay open? Of course not. Absolutely they're not. And, and here's the problem, and here's where we're headed. Once you get to a place where elected officials are so beholden to business interest and the business interest so conflicts with the interest of the American people. I mean, you can't talk out both sides. I'm pretty good at talking out both sides of my mouth. There's no way you can square that up. When you, when your vote or your support of a policy 
has been uh, because somebody made a big contribution. I don't know if you saw this or not, but I went back and read something over the weekend. Remember Speaker John Boehner? I mean, there were about 60 times that Boehner went on the record speaking against the legalization of marijuana. Guess what he's doing now? I mean, he's working for the legalization of marijuana. Guess how much he's gotten paid since he left the speakership? Most people believe it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $20 million. So the guy about 60 times in his political life as speaker and a House member said that he would never be for the legalization of marijuana until he resigns as speaker, retires as a politician, and takes a job. And what does he do? He gets paid by people who want marijuana legalized. Boehner never believed in anything. (laughs) Boehner will say whatever it is that needs to be said. Exactly. I mean, so, so, so once these interests conflict, once these interests, once John Boehner, um, but, but if you're still in office and you're, and you're saying things and you're voting on policies that, that deem a company an essential uh, job or not an essential company or not. And on this side, you've got big business and they're funding the bill. They're, they're paying the bill. They're footing the bill. We talked a second ago about the Lincoln project. Um, the Lincoln Project is going to be replaced by a, a group called the Republican Association and Political Action Committee. Bill Crystal. I mean, it's the same suspects, the same group of people. Guess who's funding the Republican Association Political Action Committee? The wife of Rupert Murdoch uh, and about two of the Walton heirs. I mean, th- thus far, that's where the money has come from. Uh, it's kind of an it's the it's the replacement of Lincoln Project. It's a never Trump anti Trump political movement. It's not a movement. It's a scam. I mean, let's stop calling it a movement. The anti-Trump movement is not a movement. It's a scam. And the scam is being perpetrated against the American people because they don't get their way. And I'm talking about the Lincoln Project. Um, and these are Republicans. Sure, they are. Well, they call are themselves they? Republicans. I mean, I don't think there's a Republican bone in Mitt Romney's body. I mean, I really don't. I put a Facebook post up um, Saturday about Romney, uh, Mitt Romney going to the Atlantic Magazine. Republicans don't go to the Atlantic Magazine on July 4th and write an essay um, calling Joe Biden a good guy. And the problem is Trump left the political orbit so contaminated that, that we can't get anything done now. Romney's not one of us. He's never been one of us. He disguised himself as a Republican. Mitt Romney's an elitist. He's a, an orthodox establishment guy. That's who he's always. That's who he is. That's who he's always been. But when you when you ask the question intentionally or not, is the government intentionally is policy intentionally advantaging big business over small business? Um, it's hard to argue they didn't. Now here's what my business friends believe. Because I asked that question, uh, they, they told me their complications. They told me their difficulties, similar to what DW just said. DW works over at Schofields, which is a big. I think it's a store manager over at Schofields, which is a big sponsor of what we do here in the mornings. So, I mean, he told you some of the troubles. Um, my brother told me that they will honor a price on steel for 24 hours. In other words, if you quote a bed, a truck bed, um, that quote is good for 24 hours. So if the dealer, if the customer doesn't make his mind up at 24 hours, that deals, I mean, it doesn't even work. It doesn't matter. I mean, all that work you did, and there's about an hour's worth of work in, in generating a price. Uh, in other words, a dealer calls and said, I need I need a price on six flatbed dumps for these trucks that could be delivered um, in September. And I mean, that's kind of the way, the nature of the business. So you get together, you put all your pen to paper, you make a price. You, uh, you, you probably would imagine now you email all this is electronically um, transmitted. So you email the price. That price is good for 24 hours. So if the end user dealing with a dealer doesn't make his mind up at 24 hours, the dealer calls back Friday and says, hey, my guy hadn't made his mind up yet. The price you gave me, is it still good? No. I mean, it's, it's $600 more now. 
per bed. What do you mean it's $600 more now? Well, steel went up three times yesterday and twice the day before. Now, but that's kind of where business owners are. And you, you just grapple with it. And these people are very competent. They're not morons. They've been very successful. They've kept their doors open for 25 or 30 or 35 or 40 years, and they don't know what to do now. I mean, they have no clue how to make a buck in that business now. Um, so we've established that is true. I mean, DW just talked about you can't find people to work. I mean, imagine this. If, imagine being a small business owner and the biggest competitor for your labor is the government. I mean, we know that. We know the government paid millions of people not to go to work, Right. I mean, I've heard a couple of Democrats recently say it's about time America goes back to work. No, America should have never stopped going to work, but we did. Mm-hmm. So, so we know we screwed it up. We know we normalized the abnormal. Did we or did we not do it intentionally? I think that's the, that's the magic question. And, you know, how do you convict the government of intentionally damaging small business? I mean, it'd be like a murder trial. You know, um, no, nobody saw the killing. But, but we know there's circumstantial evidence, and we put together a case. And if you put together a case against government, it's hard to convince me that at some point in time in this relationship, they saw the opportunity to take care of those who were writing the big checks. And it was the big boxes. Um, in other words, we were told that you can't go to a restaurant and eat a meal, but a thousand people can crowd into Walmart on a given Thursday morning or Wednesday afternoon or Saturday morning. Where's the logic in that? The local hardware had to close, but Home Depot and Lowe's could stay open. So everybody who normally goes to, you disperse audiences, a little bit go here, a little bit go, no, it's all of a sudden only two places to go. And um, so, so was it intentional or not? The small business owner believes that to begin with, probably not. I mean, they, they like to believe in patriotism and the American way and, you know, fairness for all and equality and the blind lady uh, of justice. But but they're to the point now, they're like, I don't, I don't know that it began intentional, but at some point in time, the powers to be, the power brokers, those in charge, those who make the rules that everybody else plays by, at some point in time, they saw an opportunity to consolidate um, you know, uh, market share. And, and you asked earlier, and, I, and I'll reiterate this, you said, why would they do that? Because everybody wants every bit of the market share. And this is a way to solidify your position in whatever sector of the economy you operate in. So, so yeah, I mean, I do believe that at some point in time, however, um, it may have not been nefarious or malicious. I mean, to begin with, I don't think there was. Um, we got to keep people safe. You can't go here. But 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 we we can't shut them down. You seen how much political contributions they gave us <laughs> last year? I mean, are we really gonna shut Walmart down? Are we really gonna shut Amazon? Uh, I mean, Amazon wants everybody shut down because everybody shut down. Guess what? You got to order online. And I think to believe these companies are altruistic and to believe they're genuinely interested in fairness is just being naive. These companies are interested in the bottom line, and the bottom line is basically determined by how much of the market share we have. And the larger market share, the more margin we have, the more profitable we are. And I think the government at some point in time became complicit in that consolidating of market share to fewer and fewer and fewer providers. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. We keep asking if we think this is all on purpose or 
I mean, it's kind of obvious. Biden ran as a candidate saying he was going to do away with fossil fuel. All right. First thing they did when all this came up was they, you remember 1995, the Republicans took over and they put in that work requirement for welfare and unemployment benefits and all that. First thing they did is they did away with that. That's why you can't get anybody to go to work. They've done away with the work requirement. And through this Build Back Better program, they want to tax all the S corporations, you know, the pass-throughs that they take their money at the end, and but all everything goes, it's called a pass-through. They want to tax them now. And that's all the small businesses. They're just, in all these big cities where the crime is up and they can't understand why it's up, other than defund the police, well, they let all the criminals out of the prison. I mean, they basically emptied them over this COVID garbage, and they can't understand why crime is up. That makes no sense to me at all. So, yes, this is on purpose. I mean, they've been doing this forever, every time they get in power. Look at what they did back in 72. DVT was the greatest pesticide the world had ever known to eradicate malaria. When the EPA was formed under our buddy Nixon, first thing they did was got rid of DVP. I can't remember when it was, but 72, 73, 74, they did away with DVP. And now malaria is back. Malaria has probably saved half a billion people's lives in the world. And now you're looking at 10 million or more dying because there is no DDP. So, yeah, this is all on purpose. And you you can't convince me otherwise. And until the American people wake up, when somebody walks up and slaps you in the face, you can't sit there and say, is he mad at me? Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. You know, to me, the small business sector of the economy is more emblematic or symbolic of the American, um, American experience than anybody. Um, you take chance, you roll the dice, um, you work hard, you're diligent, you're prepared, you have a little bit of setback. Somebody, but, but small business America, to me, is a representation of who we are, what we're about, what we believe in, what we stand for. Uh, when you think about it, the majority of innovation in recent times has been from the small business sector. Um, I can, I can hear people now saying, well, you know, the innovation of a business. Well, it's, it's really, you, you know what big business does? It has the, the resources to buy some of the, um, some of the ideas of small business. The majority of innovation in our economy today have happened um, in small business. And the small business guy sees an opportunity to sell his small business to a bigger business for what we call going home money. And I don't blame people for that, but the majority of innovation doesn't happen in some of these big businesses. It's in the small business. It ends up in the hands of big business because they have the money and the resources to buy. Dave Baker makes a better widget in a small business in, um, in Florence, South Carolina. And along comes one of the Fortune 500 companies, and they tell Dave Baker, hey, we'll give you $550 million for that small business that okay. you thought was worth. Yeah, that's exactly what <laughs> Dave does um, because he doesn't want to fight you know, the big business. I mean, he understands how tough it is to compete in that in that space. So he sells his, um, you know, catching lightning in a bottle idea. And next thing you know, one of the one of the monstrosities, one of the international uh, multinational conglomerates 
And we believe that, you know, 3M is so innovative. I would argue, uh, I don't know this to be true. Um, I'm thinking about the 3M because I was in the truck body business. We dealt with 3M and a lot of um, chemicals and adhesives and all these other sorts of things. How many times has 3M really invented or innovated? And how many times has they just gone out and bought somebody else's business because they had a better way uh, at adhesives or, or paints or chemicals or, or some sort of zinc washing or whatever, whatever it may be. But, but the point I'm trying to make is um, when we say, okay, it's intentional. I mean, the majority of you listening believe it's intentional. Why? And I've got this weird theory. We're jumping the gun here a bit now. I've got this weird theory that the government looks at small businessmen and women as the most independent, rambunctious, I'll do things my way or the highway group in the history of our country. Because they kind of, um, ah, they play loose and fast. They don't dot every I. They don't cross every T. Sometimes they have to do it. I don't know how many times I've heard my dad say, I'm going to have to do it this way. I'll take a chance that if I get caught, I'll deal with it. But I'm going to have to do it this way because I can't do it and make money the way they want me to do it. I mean, he was the embodiment of somebody who naturally disobeys government policy. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Let's play this out a step further. You ready? So we, we, we're, we spend the first hour talking about these three people who express their displeasure with government, um, trying to run their business. Um, didn't say exactly the same thing, but by and large, I don't know how to run my business any longer and make a profit. Uh, I tried to explain to Rev during the break how long it takes to quote a truck body. Um, and then you've got a delivery period. And all of a sudden, the steel company says, we'll honor the quote 24 hours. Um, and then you order the steel. Here's another story. You order the steel. We don't have it. I mean, supply chain disruptions and, you know, we, we just don't have the steel. When will you have it? We'll have it in three weeks. <laughs> okay. I'm in the business of, of, of welding steel together and I don't have any steel. Um, and so, so we know that small business has been significantly disadvantaged as a result of COVID. Um, and then you kind of ask the question, intentional or not? Here's another leg of the stool. You ready? And this is why I think it's so interesting to me. And this is why I'm kind of stuck on this right now, leaving the Fed alone. I mean, the Fed needs to be abolished. We've established that. There's no question about it. The Fed needs to be abolished. But the abolishment of the Fed would create such a, uh, a ripple effect within the private and public sector, for that matter, that that's just not going to happen. I mean, it's just simply not. Um, the people in charge will not allow that to happen because the people in charge are the ones benefiting from the Fed sure. staying as it is. Here's the issue. The right track, wrong track number is 88% today. 10% of Americans believe we're going the right track. 88% were on the wrong track. The most interesting number in Pew's, um, Pew does a lot of this. The actions of the federal government or the reason the country's on the wrong track. I mean, that's kind of an added question in this uh, reality. So 88% the country's on the wrong track. For the first time that I've ever kept up with it, the majority of Americans believe the actions of the federal government are the largest contributor to why we are on hmm. the wrong track. That is a kind of an interesting number there. So let's go down the road of, um, is it intentional or not? Well, I mean, apparently a majority of Americans believe it is intentional because the actions of the federal government are a large contributor to why the country's on the wrong track. Let's go even another step further. Um, 
I think we're heading for a moment of controversy sooner than later. Um, stick with me for a second now, because we've talked about the public sector declaring war on the private sector. The private sector has one set of rules. My my brother, these two other business guys I'm dealing with are scratching their heads trying to figure out a way to make money. Nobody in the pri- public sector is doing that that I know of, with all due respect. I mean, nobody in the public sector is going to work every day, you know, struggling to keep their doors open or dealing with, you know, regulation and stipulation and mandates and government agency and another government agency. I'm not saying that, that once again, I want to, for clarity's sake, I'm not arguing that everybody in the public sector is trying to run small business out of town. I'm certainly not arguing that. But but there has to be some intent here. Um, do big bit Does big business get treated the same as a small business? Here's where I think we're headed, and this is why I think it's such an interesting dynamic. Um, there was a day in America that about 80% of all private sector employees had some sort of retirement plan. That number's about 45 or so now, roughly 50. I mean, if you're in a business of 5,000 or more employees, there's still a pretty good chance you got a retirement account, probably not a pension, but a defined benefit plan. But in some way, you put up money, they put up money, some sort of match that goes along with that. Um, only 33% of the businesses with less than 300 employees have a retirement plan. I mean, it's fend for yourself now. And I believe that in about 10 or 15 or maybe 20 years, we're going to be in a place where the only people retired are the public sector employees. And it's going to lead to resent. It's going to lead to, uh, so, so I'm in this private sector business. I'm the one contributing the GDP to the economy that the public sector gets to compensate a certain percentage of, you know, to pay their employees and pay the government's bills and whatnot. And all of a sudden, uh, the golf courses at two o'clock in the afternoon are full of public sector workers and nobody there who works for a business can retire because there's no retirement plan. There's no defined pension plan. Once again, of businesses with less than 300 employees, only about one in three have some sort of retirement plan. And for, for a long, long, long time, we've been led to believe that, you know, it's better to work in the private sector. The pay is higher in the private sector. Um, but that's just not the case any longer. So when you look at, is it intentional or not? When you look at the right track, wrong track number being 88% and the action to the federal government for the first time that I've ever paid attention to this is the majority. 57% of Americans believe the actions of the federal government have a lot to do with why the country is on the wrong track. And I think we're heading to this um, squabble. You know, and I don't think it's hatred. I don't think it's vitriol. I don't think it's, you know, private sector guy gets a gun and hunts down the guy in the public sector. But I think there's going to be an unspoken and at times even a spoken resentment that people in the private sector are going to have for people in the public sector. Because once again, there, there was a day in, in 1980, about 66 out of about 62 percent of all Americans had a retirement plan of some sort, uh, whether it's a defined pension or excuse me, a pension plan where the company sets aside money, whether it was a defined contribution plan where you put up and they put up uh, 401k by profit sharing. Now that number is less than 50%. And if you're not working with a big, big company, it's far less than 50%. In fact, it's about one in three. So let's fast forward to 2035. And everybody retired, retired from the public sector. Everybody working with the private sector, 75 years old, still going to work every day. You don't believe that's going to lead to some sort of um, animus or discontent or resentment? And see, I mean, all of these fundamentals are just out of sorts. I mean, they don't make any sense. And I'm not trying to spur along. 
you know, private sector employees getting aggravated and angry with the public sector. But, but I think we're headed there. And I think the numbers are beginning to clearly show that this is the reality because, once again, the private sector employee doesn't believe. He doesn't just believe the odds are stacked against him. He thinks it's on purpose. I mean, he think, I mean you're nodding your head. I mean, he yeah. thinks, that, yeah, okay, they played this game better than I played it. Well, the reason they played it better than you played it is they're the ones that get to make the rules. I mean, how many times has DHEC called a business owner and said, what do you think the rules should be this year? Or how many times has EPA called a manufacturing facility and said, hey, we want input from you this year? Of course not. And I think it's I think there's one of the great internal American struggles to come, and I think it's private sector employees and public sector employees confronted with these stark realities and these cold hard truths that show one group of people's had it a whole lot better than the other group. And I think small business has had the bullseye on its back. And I think small business, uh, and I think COVID, you know, once again, when my friend said, I don't think they began with intent. I mean, I think when COVID hit, that there was probably some sincerity. I think the governor of South Carolina probably thought he needed to do X, Y, or Z in relation to how to respond. But I think eventually they saw, hey, this may be a way to put these uh, deck chairs exactly where we've always wanted to put these deck chairs. And when, when you talk about Amazon and Walmart and Target and Home Depot and Lowe's, and I'm not picking on those companies. I mean, I think those companies added to the economy. But they got all the breaks. But they got, you know, Lowe's market share today is probably bigger than it was pre-COVID. Home Depot's market share today is probably bigger than it was pre-COVID. Walmart's market share, if it could have gotten any bigger, is probably bigger today as a result. Amazon, I mean, um, and I love these these romantic arguments. Uh, we'll just compete. I mean, just compete in the marketplace. But if, if you want to be in the private sector, you got to compete. you got to win. you got to make better widgets and better employees. The government competed. The biggest competitor small business had for its workforce was the federal government. Because I had these guys say, Ken, here's here's the deal. So I'm trying to run my business. I've got people that won't come to work. My tax dollars are subsidizing to some degree. I mean, I'm competing with myself. I mean, the government's confiscating a certain percentage of my earnings and my net worth and my, you know, the money I make. And they're, they're, they're deciding how to, you know, expend this money in some way, shape or form. So as I run my business, you know, competing in the marketplace, I'm also competing against the government that takes my money and directly competes with my best interest. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of resentment. Um, I, for one, believe that, that it should you should be offended if you're a business owner. If you're a small business man or woman right now in America, you should be deeply offended by the rules of the game because it's not to your advantage. It's just, I mean, it, I don't want to say you've always had, you know, the, the, uh, the bad hand in the game, but I think now more than ever, your chances of being, and that's probably why you see startups and small business closures. I mean, we know the math. I've seen the numbers. It's overwhelming um, how many startups in, in, the, in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s. I mean, we were the, the laboratory of small business. I mean, there was one, you know, starting on every street corner, and some made it, some did not. Now people are very hesitant to try and start uh, their own business. And startups are in decline. Small business closures are increasing. Um, and I do believe it, it is very intentional. I think the government has done exactly what the government was, quote, unquote, paid to do. Look after those who write the checks. And I love it when someone says, well, I mean, the reason these big boxes, the reason the American Chamber of Commerce takes all these contributions from the biggest businesses is to make sure they protect capitalism. 
<laughs> okay, um, save me the humor. I mean, stop. I mean, really, stop with that. I mean, they're doing that to create competitive advantages in the marketplace. It's distortion. I mean, it's to make sure we don't have a fair, a fair and free market, to make sure that certain businesses do have a distinct advantage. And when I see this 57%, I'm a little bit encouraged because it appears to me that the American public are beginning to say, oh, okay. I mean, I've always thought you were um, a friend to this side or a friend to that side, but I've never believed to that extent. And now we're beginning to see the American people are – uh, we're kind of on to the game. Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Morning, Larry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Larry. Um, I, th- I think you are on to something. I, when when they sent everybody home, so to speak, and the government, you know, added the big federal benefit to the unemployment and all that, which I don't even know if that's still going on, but um, I know they did remove the work requirement, uh, you know, the look for work requirement. And I think that if you, if you look at you can kind of lay that at the feet of Nancy Pelosi. I think she was really on top of her game. And they did, the federal government did come out to compete with small business as an employer. Not to go work in a federal building somewhere, but to be on the federal payroll. And I think the idea behind it was they think that small businesses don't pay their employees fairly. Democrats are raised to believe that all businesses have a big pile of money in a vault somewhere that they just won't unleash because they're so greedy. And so what they thought was, well, we can't get minimum wage passed through Congress. So what we'll do is we'll do it a different way. We'll just send everybody a minimum wage. And then it'll force these employers to raise the wages that they pay people. So in effect, we'll create a new minimum wage. And I, I mean, I think that was their line of thinking. It's not the, the hatred that they have for, for small business isn't for its existence. It's just that, like you said, they can't control it. So they, they came at it from a different angle, and they went in competition with them for pay, not for jobs, but just for pay. So when will all these people come off of all these federal programs? I don't know. But, um, and maybe you do, and I don't know which are still even in force today. But until they come off those federal programs and until minimum wage, so to speak, which now has become welfare or, or unemployment or whatever you want to call it, they're setting what the minimum wage for an American citizen is. Until they release that and it goes back to the marketplace, um, I don't know that you're going to get a workforce participation rate high enough to fix these supply chain shortages just because most of it just comes down to we don't have enough workers. Um, but the next question is, Will it have done any good to have raised workers' wages, or will it set the economy back so far that by the time that program's over, employees are worse off than when they started? Because if that is the case, that is an argument that people will have to make out loud, or the government will just try to do it again. That's a very interesting point. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Let me give you a hypothetical here. Let's run through some numbers. Let's say a business does a million dollars in annual sales, a small business, a mom and pop does a million dollars in annual sale. They try to make 12% margin. That's $120,000 a year for all the headache that they put up with. So to Larry's point, and he's exactly right. I mean, they forced a new minimum wage. In other words, in the, in the restaurant, the dishwasher was making $12 an hour because he just got out of rehab. He just got out of jail. I mean, it's not the most desirable job in America. 
but but the, the kind of people that need that job to get themselves reestablished in normal society, I mean, they're not looking to buy a new Lamborghini. I mean, they accept, well, they, under normal circumstances, they would accept. So they take that $12 an hour job. Well, all of a sudden, that person who just got out of jail or just got out of rehab, that uh, they've had some issues in their life. They're just not the kind of employee that is worth 25 or 30 or 40 bucks an hour in the marketplace today. The government said, okay, the guy running the restaurant will pay you 12 bucks an hour to wash dishes. We'll pay you 19 an hour to do nothing. So the guy either serves your food on dirty dishes or he finds a dishwasher he has to pay $20 an hour for. Well, all of a sudden, the $20 an hour dishwasher, there's three uh, per shift. Um, instead of uh, 24 36 instead of $36 an hour in cumulative pay, he's got you know 60 bucks an hour. Where does that money go? Well, it has to go into the product. So, so the hamburger isn't you know, $9 anymore. It's got to be $11.50, $12, $12.50, $13. The insurance premium. Because he had three more workers' comp claims. The workers' comp claim, or the workers' comp uh, mod, you know, what they call the modifier. I mean, it's a mod. It's, it's based on how many claims you've had and what sort of business you're in. Um, so all of a sudden, it goes up more because, uh, once again, people are disgruntled. You know, they, they, they'll fall at work. They'll say they got hurt at work. I mean, these are the these are the issues of small business. So let me ask you a question. You could go to work for the government and make 100 grand a year or make 120 grand a year and put up with all that headache. What are you going to do? And I just think I think Larry will agree with me here. And um, and once again, they made everybody federal employees. They turned the business owner into a quasi unemployment agency with PPP. I understand PPP, keeping the business connected to the employee. But you know what PPP also did? It turned the government, it turned the, the the business owner into a quasi unemployment agency. In other words, you can't run your business, but here's the money to pay your employees to not come to work, and it changed. The mindset. So, so I think Larry's exactly right. It established a new norm. The one thing that, that government doesn't understand, because very few of these people have ever been in small business, is that it, it's not that lucrative at certain times. I mean, there, there are times you can make some money, but but small businessmen and women aren't making 30, 40, 45, 50% margins. So what happens when you when you force the restaurant owner, the, the independent restaurateur, when you first when you force that guy who has one mom and pop, I'm thinking about a hundred in Florence, Sumter, and Orangeburg, when you when you force that person and all of a sudden the the pay rate for a dishwasher isn't twelve dollars any longer, it's twenty two or three or four dollars an hour. Um that restaurant owner is less inclined to be successful. He's less inclined to find employees. So what happens? It further consolidates the marketplace. All of a sudden, the Darden Group, you know, or some of the national brands, some of the national chains, and and you've run the small restaurant owner, the independent restaurant owner, out of business. That's the struggle here. And 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 I think you know we know where we ended up. I mean, I'm sure of that. Small business has been significantly, significantly impaired by what we did, what government actions and orders happened. To basically, they profess to save the economy, I would argue. But at some moment in time, they saw a benefit to this. They saw a chance to force the small businessman and woman who don't they don't believe are paying their people enough money. What is a person out of rehab or, or just out of jail? What is that person worth to the economy? I mean, isn't it, isn't it reasonable to expect that person to earn their um, place back into the economy? I'm not saying $12 is the magic number. I'm not saying 50 I don't know what the magic number is. The market dictates some of that. But but of what value does that person bring to the enterprise? And all of a sudden, a dishwasher 
was making 12 because he's had some issues, man. And he's trying to get himself back together. He's trying to one day make 25 or $30 an hour. The government basically inferred to the small business owner, $12 isn't enough to pay someone to wash dishes. We're going to force you to pay them 22 or $3 an hour. Well, once you force someone to pay a dishwasher, 23, 24, $25 an hour, what happens to the cost of that cheeseburger and chips? I mean, it's it's. Uh, I mean, you know what's well, happening. Of course, you know what happens. But very few people in the government have lived under those circumstances, and that's the travesty in all of this. How few people understand the dynamics of the con- the economy, the intricacies of of small business, but they're the ones enforcing the laws of which those very people have to abide by and operate under. Take a break. Back. In just a minute. So when this all, let's assume, let's make an assumption that the majority of us know what we're talking about. Uh, Larry called in and expressed himself, explained. Joe said a few things. Uh, For argument's sake, let's say that it's true, that indeed we've established that some of this has been intentional. That that once the the government agency saw an opening um, to do their friends a favor and, you know, make it more complicated for small business, um, they took advantage of it. Um, In Columbia, I call it pulling up the ladder. I mean, it's not it distortion to the free market is what it is. The government policy and edict. Um, and here's how it works. So a, um, a collaboration of business interests decide that they can make more money if this was the way the game had to be played. They go to some consulting or lobbying company in Washington or Columbia, for that matter, any state capital and say, hey, you know, doesn't it make more sense? Would it be more efficient, easier to monitor and police if we did it this way? Um, not really. Not really. I mean, I, I, I kind of like it the way it is. But if we had these three fundraisers, I mean, if we had one in Charleston, one in Columbia, one in Myrtle Beach, and we raised you $150,000, could we bring you around to seeing things <laughs> I mean, the way we see them? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're making some sense. I need to better understand it. But I get the way it works. I mean, that, that's the nature of, I mean, that's why people say money's the mother's milk of politics. Because it nurtures the system, it gets it, you know, to, to a to a place of sustainability and a, you know being able to provide and take care of itself. So you know the the fundraising takes place. The campaign has contributions in play or in um in the coffers, and you know the government begins working on these these policies. And once again, I don't think it starts out as nefarious. I mean, I really don't. I think it um I think po- politicians know they need money to keep running for office. And the small business community normally doesn't have the um, the disposable income or the, the money not spoken for to make these sorts of contributions. And, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Um, the best money Amazon spent during COVID was probably lobbying government. The, the best money Walmart spent during COVID was probably lobbying government. Keep them shut down and allow me to stay open. Is that nefarious or is that capitalistic? I mean, I'd argue it's capitalist. There's no, I mean, there's no uh, evil, or, 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 I mean, it's not maniacal or diabolical to say to to the government, "Hey, we want to stay open to keep all them closed." Um, it's market share. I mean, I want more market share. That's what corporations do. That they seek return on shareholders' investment. They have a burning desire, almost limited, unlimited compulsion to make more and more and more and more money. So when COVID hits. And all of a sudden, it's it's not safe for a family to go to the beach, but it is safe for that family to load up and go to Walmart. Really, it's not safe for that family to do some of the uh, go to church. Here you go. 
I mean, it's not safe for the family of five to get in their station. Well, I'm old fashioned now to get in their <laughs> minivan or SUV and go to um, church. But it is safe for that same family to go to Walmart or Home Depot or Lowe's. Really? But that's where we were. I mean, churches were closed. Why? It's unsafe. That many people in that close proximity. You know, the recirculating of air. We heard all these HVAC upgrades that needed to be done. And um, But you can go to Walmart. I mean, what if the church had lobbied the government to the tune of multiple millions of dollars? Um, that, that would be an interesting question. What if the, what if the American Federation of Churches had, had, had a billion dollars in a bank account somewhere and they donated all of that money to government agencies or government, uh, government selected officials? Do you think church would have been closed down? That, that is kind of an interesting, uh, I'm stumbling on this as we, this is in real time. So the church hypothetically has a billion dollars in a political action committee and the church has the authority to pay uh, or to, uh, to contribute, to make contributions to elected officials at the state and uh, federal level in the name of keeping church open. Now, Walmart's open because why? Walmart was lobbying the government to make sure it stayed open a million dollars a month. Is what Walmart, Target, and uh, Amazon were spending in the name of making sure you don't close us down. Um, at what point in time? And here's the interesting question, Rev. I'll ask you: Do you believe it was all about Walmart staying open, or Walmart staying open and making sure some of the local businesses, the competition, were closed? Do you know they thought about that? Of course they did, and worked for it. They had an obligation. It's market share. Um, we we have more market share than anybody in America, but we don't have it all. And we're not satisfied until we have it all. Because if we have it all, we're the most profitable we could possibly be. And government said, government said to Walmart and Amazon and some of these big companies, you're right. You need to be open, but we need these other businesses, these other smaller businesses to be closed. What is the rationale behind that? It's political contributions. I mean, that's what is the rationale behind this. Public opinion doesn't matter in any of this. It's all about where the money comes from. And here's the encouraging part as far as I'm concerned. 57% of Americans today believe we're on the wrong track because of the actions of the federal government. That's an encouraging number to me. I'd feel much better if it were 77%. But but do people believe it's the fault of... I want to use quotes here, the government or our elected representatives. I don't know. I mean, I, you know the, the, and do they make a differentiation well, between Well, I mean, the, the elected representatives are there to answer to the public. I mean, the bureaucrats don't answer to the public. How many bureaucrats do you hire? None. I mean, you may but, but recommend. who's making these decisions that affect the small businesses and and advantage the big businesses? Well, I mean, I think they're made. It's, who elected Fauci? I mean, if you're, if you're a small business owner, your life has never been impacted by anyone like Fauci before. I mean, Dr. Fauci had more impact on my brother's truck body manufacturing business, on my friend's um, car dealership, on my other friend's hospitality business. Anthony Fauci sat in, a, in, in an office somewhere. I mean, nobody would know where his office is. I mean, I would imagine some of the real insiders would. But I mean, if you went to Washington and said, hey, I'm looking for this Anthony Fauci guy. You know, he calls me great consternation in my business, and I want to settle that score. Would you know where to look? Would you know how to look? Um, no, you wouldn't. Nobody would have any idea how to do. But we have reorganized the private sector, and we've we put small business at a competitive disadvantage that I think they'll live with for the balance of their existence. 
I mean, I don't know how you crawl back. I don't know how you go back to paying, uh, uh, you know, an entry-level employee, uh, whatever the wage was. I mean, what is an entry-level employee worth? Um, that, that's the great debate. And here's another nugget of this conversation. Um, do we really want the government suggesting what dishwashers and restaurants should make or what welders and truck body manufacturers or mechanic at, at the um, at the auto dealership? I mean, do we really want government's hand involved in any of that? I mean, how many government agents or how many government elected officials do you know that have any understanding at all of labor markets? How many have any interest at all? And here's what I'm arguing. We're going to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. And this will probably be the humor in all of this. I mean, we'll all be broke and homeless and, and destitute. But at some point in time, government will understand where it gets its resources from. I mean, if, if one day down the road, and, and you know, once again, the, the tension that I talked about last week between raising taxes and cutting spending has been kind of kind of relegated. We've relegated that authority to the Fed. I mean, in essence, the Fed has said, okay, you elected officials who have to make real tough decisions about where to get the money and how much of it you can spend, we'll take you off the hook on that. I mean, we'll let you off the hook by some of this Fed policy. Uh, we'll just print money. Spend the money. Vote to spend the money. Don't worry about where it comes from. We're your backstop. I mean, the, the lunacy of this model, and, and once again, I thought about it over the weekend. If the Fed has printed $13 trillion since 2010, where is it? Where is that money? I mean, if that money's out of the economy somewhere, I mean, the, the small business owners I'm talking to aren't making any more money today than they ever have. Uh, the, the retirees, I mean, is your life better? Uh, is, is the radio station's business better today as a result of $13 trillion in liquidity that made its way into the economy? Where is that money? I mean, it's all in corporate America. It's all in Wall Street. And it's this top-down model that has to be. And this is really why we had the America First uprising, because people began to realize that the – I don't know that we understand. I think we understand the game is rigged, and I think I understand how the game is rigged a little more than you do. I don't want to profess to be an expert here, but but when we argue – oh, and when Trump has said the game is rigged, um, he's right. I mean, the game is rigged. There, there's $13 trillion of liquidity floating around out there that was not floating around a dozen years ago. Where is that money? And why did that money? Here's a better question. Why did that money end up where it ended up? I mean, do you think the smartest and brightest and hardest working? Or do you think those who distorted government, who helped distort capitalism via the federal government, did they end up with the money? And other, here, here's, here's a better question. The person who made the best widget deserves to be compensated for making the best widget. That's not the economy we live in. We live in an economy now, the guy that makes the best widget, he gets something, but the guy that helps create the government program that allocates the resources of capital, he gets a far better shake than the person who genuinely, genuinely made a widget that contributed to the quality of life, uh, the concern of the GDP, and, and that's the normal economic cycles. That's what happens. Dave Baker made a fantastic widget, and out of that widget came an enormous payday. But now Dave Baker's better off not worrying about that widget, but, but doctoring the game, creating rules and regulations that allow his very average widget <laughs> to be the only widget that, that anybody can buy. Hmm. Let's go to the phone. Something seems wrong with that. Here's Breeze. Morning, Breeze. Kenny, you're dead all right. You saw Nancy Pelosi's husband bought uh, $5 million worth of stock 
in a semiconductor chip company right before Nancy Pelosi and them getting ready to subsidize the chip industry here in America. So it is rigged. But if you think about it, you talk about how it's rigged against small businesses. It goes back, and the whole thing about COVID and everything that's going on is a, and with these big corporations, they have, want to have total control over us. They, all, they hate small businesses. What they would hate, kid, is if I came to you 20 years ago and said, hey, Kenny, I want you to make me a truck bed and everything and all. And listen, well, you, can you do it for $5,000 and $100 bills? You say, you better believe I can, Breeze. That's what they're scared to death of. Say, they don't want small businesses. They don't want businesses, you know, like, like a restaurant that wasn't a big chain corporation, like Kid and Breeze's cheeseburgers and protein shakes. Well, they, did, they were scared to death because they gave us freedom. Cash gives you freedom. They don't want you in gas cars and trucks because it gives you freedom. The less freedom we have, the more control they have over us. And I'll tell you what the problem that the Republicans are going to run into. I know you like to read the comment sections. So you'll see one of, like, a, I was reading the comment sections on Ted Cruz talking about all of the things they're going to do when the Republicans say control of Congress. We're going to fight, we're going to put these SOBs in jail. We're going to investigate this. We're going to investigate that. And you know what 99% of the replies were? You aren't going to do nothing. You're in it just as deep as they are. In other words, there are more and more people like me that don't trust the Republicans any more than they trust the Democrats. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And, you know, and they're, and they're all frustrated because you know, they say we're sick and tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. I had a Democrat in our studio last week said she voted for Biden because she thought he was the lesser of two evils. Well, now she found out that maybe, maybe, maybe he wasn't the lesser of two evils. The problem is we got we are voting between the less we are both uh, both we were voting for evil every time. I don't see any of these Republicans. I don't think they're going to do a damn thing. I think at the very least, what they'll do is they'll calm us all down for four to eight years. But as far as changing anything back to where it should be and should have been all along, you're still going to have guys saying they're girls. You're still going to have all of this crazy crap with the Democrats. And what they'll do is when Republicans take office, they'll do everything they can. And Republicans won't do anything to stop them. They're daggone dog, just like they did Trump. Screw things up, screw things up, screw things up, screw things up. Then they'll come back in, and they'll push us further and further. So what their plan is for these these multi-dog global corporations and these governments control their citizens. And don't make any mistake about it. The U.S. government funded the lab in China, and it was released on purpose. COVID was released on purpose for the, for the whole point of getting this done. And they wanted to get rid, and the Chinese were getting their ass handed to them by Trump. So they said, "We got to do something to stop this all this." And what? And, the, and all of the uh, politicians are in China's back pocket. And it may sound like a conspiracy theory, but every damn conspiracy theory so far has pretty much come true. So I mean, yeah, that's what it is. And uh, the frustrating part, I mean, at least we know about it now, kid. The only good thing is now, I don't think I think they've been doing it for a hundred years. We just didn't know they were doing it to us. We thought we were free, but we never really were free. You know, we were living in a matrix and didn't even know it. But at least now we know what they're doing to us, and I think more and more people are realizing what they're doing to it. I had a liberal say the other day, you know, I just don't know if uh, what we're going to do about 
COVID, it doesn't look like the vaccines are working very good. It doesn't look like the vaccine. You know what they're saying? What we're saying. None of this seems to have worked. So we got two choices. We can lock ourselves in our house. We can live our lives. So I think more and more people are coming to a realization. I just don't know what anybody's going to actually do about it when the rubber hits the road, you know? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. A lot to cover there. Let's take a break, come back. But he made a lot of very valid points. Um, does the government like the freedom that you believe you deserve? Does today's modern, woke, enlightened government really and truly like the fact that our Constitution affords you the freedoms and liberties to confront it at, 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 kind of under your terms, not theirs? Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. So what do you think happens? Because this kind of sets up conflict, uh, even more conflict between public sector public sector and private sector right well, i mean it's not it's not well i mean it, it will get personal under some under certain circumstances and in some places but the point i'm trying to make and, and once again there's no national view story to refer to i mean this is a lot of just um just craziness that runs through this uh busy head syndromed afflicted brain of mine um and i like to play these scenarios out but it was a very it was a it was a kind of a personal reckoning um thursday when i talked to these three people and i didn't call them to find out what you think of the labor market or what you think of i mean i had specific reasons to talk to my brother i had a specific reason to talk to my friend whose family has owned an auto dealership all of their lives i mean i don't know a world in which they didn't own that dealership and he and i grew up together um i didn't call my friend in the restaurant hospitality business to find out what he thought about covid restrictions or you know this uh, this new strain of covid I talked about different things, and during our conversation, which each were about 20 minutes, it, it all it, it went back to, I can't make money. I mean, I don't know how to make any money here. Uh, the one thing I've always been fairly good at is making a buck, and I can't make a buck in this manufacturing business. I can't make a buck, and that kind of opened the door, and I said, well, what's wrong? I mean, help me understand. I don't know the restaurant business. Help me understand, and he went through about you know supply chains and pricing and, and labor, uh, my brother told me that it is not unusual to have a person working and take a lunch break and not come back. I mean, he said what? that's not real unusual. Um, uh, the the person in the in the in the in the, in the hospitality business, he says, you know, they'll walk out of the middle of a shift, and it's a little bit like this. I'll, I'll give a weird analogy. It's the weirdest analogy I can think of here today. But argued with my wife and family over the weekend. Uh, my wife and I were at the beach, and two of our kids came down, and we were talking Saturday night. And I said, "You know, I grew up wearing a tie to church. I mean, I don't think I'm any more religious than you are. I don't think there's a special place in heaven for people who wear ties to church, and and a lesser place in heaven for those who don't. I mean, I don't buy that. But I can remember the first time I didn't wear a tie, and it was a little bit weird for me. And then I wear, um, I go without a jacket. Hmm." Really tempting the devil with that. And then I go with a golf shirt on. And then I wore a pair of jeans. But I've never worn flip-flops and pajama pants. I mean, I, I put guardrails up for myself. Now, once again, I'm not saying you can't go to heaven wearing flip-flops and, 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 and jogging pants or flip-flops and, and pajama. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that that matters or not. But it seems to me that we've allowed society to exist without any guardrails whatsoever. Um, and once again, I think God come as you are. If all you've got is flip-flops and pajama pants, come to church. But but I think a lot of people are just going, 
to tempt fate, to, to, to show I don't have to do like everybody else has to do. And I think COVID allowed people who washed dishes for a living or worked in the restaurant for a living, they didn't have the most lucrative career, but they were doing the best they could. Um, maybe they aren't as talented. Maybe they aren't as experienced. Maybe they don't uh, don't have a desire to make a lot of money. I mean, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not being judgmental about any of this, but for whatever reason, the government suggested to them that your bad deal is not of your own making. You're making 12 bucks an hour washing dishes, not because you were a drug addict and you're trying to clean yourself up and redeem yourself or you committed a crime and now you're on some work release pro. No, that the reason you're being kept down is that guy who owns that restaurant, that guy who owns that manufacturing business, that person who runs that car dealership. We've got to stop that. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Once again, the, the first couple of hours of today's show, I don't know that there's a National Review article to refer to or a real clear politics poll of which you can go and, and better understand. But we're talking about, uh, it's a very general issue in American politics. And when I saw the number over the weekend, once again, right track, wrong track, 88% of Americans believe we're on the, the wrong track. 57% believe a large contributor to us being on the wrong track or the actions of the federal government. If you're a small government guy like I am, a bit of a libertarian, uh, that's an encouraging number because a lot of the blame lies at the foot of our federal government and its ever-abusive, intrusive forces that have um, manipulated, distorted the private sector in a way that I think we should all be deeply offended by. We have a guest. I want to shift gears. Go to a guest we've got uh, in Columbia, maybe Charleston. I think Wes has moved to, to Charleston, if I'm not mistaken. He's the CEO of Push Digital. Wesley Donahue is a friend of mine who was in Columbia when I was there. Now, now Wes has always been one of the young, bright people in, in South Carolina politics, but I always refer to him as the guy that could dress with my former chief of staff. Uh, my former chief of staff was well-dressed, still is well-dressed. I don't know where he got the money to buy those exquisite uh, clothes from, but Wes was the guy that always said, hey, there's your rival right there, my man. Uh, Wes, good morning. How are you, sir? What's up, brother? Good to hear from you. Good to talk to you. So is the uh, is the attire still in in good standing as we speak? I've taken it to a whole new level, man. you got to stand out. You know, life's a stage. Everybody's got to play their part, right? So, okay. Uh, I, I, I try to play mine. Good deal, good deal. But but you've, you've taken on a new project that I'm keenly interested in. You're now an author. You've written a book called Under Fire, 13 Rules for Surviving Cancel Culture. It's doing extremely well. I think it, if I'm not mistaken, the number one public relations book in America. Is that right? And what motivated you, Wes, to want to write this book? Yes, sir. Right now it is the number one public relations book in America. Um, so, yeah, you said I'm a, I'm a South Carolina politico, but lately I've been doing a lot more national. U.S. Senate races, governor's races across the country. But really this book came from two things. One, uh, my company also does a lot of corporate work, and we're the company that was brought on to save SeaWorld about seven years ago when they were really one of the first corporations to be caught up in this cancel culture that we're seeing right now. So over a five-year period, we saved SeaWorld from PETA, and I tell that story in here. But from a more personal standpoint, about three years ago, I cracked a bad joke on Twitter uh, that I thought was pretty funny. Evidently, a lot of people did not, in the, um, you know, especially in the LGBTQ community. And I got canceled, and they came after me, and I own a brewery. And they were boycotting my brewery, and it was uh, my own personal hell, to be honest with you. It was a really tough few months, and I decided to put all the lessons I learned helping uh, political candidates, helping SeaWorld, and then 
getting to it myself into a book for people. Okay, we want people to buy and read the book, but what sort of, I mean, as specific and detailed as you'd like, what sort of um, opinions or what sort of uh, education can people expect to receive when they read this book? Yeah, so look, man, I, we, everybody knows that cancel culture can come after a corporation like Steve World or any politician or a celebrity like a Dave Chappelle or Joe Rogan. What they might not realize is that it's trickled down to like the small business owner or just like a cop or a teacher or a principal. And we're seeing these stories more and more every day that it's not just limited to the people you might see on the news every night or on TV or in the movie screen, right? Anybody can be canceled. So I lay out 13 lessons that I learned that folks can use in their own personal life. One, to avoid what you're seeing right now with the mob coming after you. And two, if it does happen to you, how you can respond quickly and survive and, and not go out of business or not lose your job and you know your way of providing for your family. Because let's be honest, Ken, that's what their mob's after, right? They're not after at this point just to silence you. They want to destroy you. They want to ruin you. They want to make sure that you can never work again and provide for your family again and that someone Googles your name, all they see is really, really horrible things. That's the place we are in culture these days, and somebody's got to fight back against it because it's real BS. Wes, it does seem that President Donald Trump um, changed the rules. I mean, you know, he said things that we never imagined a president could say, got away with things we never imagined an American politician could get away with. Why was he able to, to, to blow through the norms of society and the norms of a political construct and get away with it. Let me, let, me, let me turn that question back on you, Ken, and ask you very – and we're not attacking President Trump because we all like President Trump here. But do you think President Trump ever thinks that he's wrong? No. That's right. And that's why he's able to get away with it because it was authentic to him. Most people have to apologize because they don't have his brand, right? If you, most, of, most people, most humans – feel like sometimes they screw up. You might screw up with your wife or your kid or, you know, it doesn't matter. If you're a coworker, most people in life feel like they screw up. Donald Trump is a rare human being who never thinks he screws up. So it was authentic for him to never have to apologize. Where Joe Rogan, if you listen to Rogan, which like a lot of us do, probably a lot of your listeners listen to Rogan, Joe Rogan apologized after his video with all the N-words because that was authentic to him because he's the kind of guy that has a lot of empathy and sincerity and feels bad for when he screws up. So Donald Trump changed the game because Donald Trump is different than most people. But Wes, what is the danger? I mean, you're flawed. I'm flawed. I make mistakes. You've made mistakes. Mine are fairly well documented. A few of yours are fairly well documented. But what is the danger to the social construct or contract when we are so afraid to screw up we refuse to address or express ourselves on issues that fundamentally matter to to our state, nation, and its people. Oh, man, I, I think it's, it's detrimental that we all speak up. And I don't think people should ever uh, hold their tongue and not speak up. I just think that human beings occasionally do slip up and do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. If, if, if you sincerely believe that you were saying the right thing, and that you are doing what's best for you, your family, your community, the state, and this country, then you should speak up regardless of the consequences. But as humans, we are all, we are all supposed to also have empathy for other humans. And we all know when we say something that crosses the line. The problem is, is that we're on the Internet, so what we're trying to do is say things that are so inflammatory that they go viral, even though we know they're not the right thing to say. Wes, how, is, like, throughout American history, we've had our founding fathers who all knew that they had to speak up 
But they all knew there was a line that humans are supposed to draw, and we all know where that line is. In the political consulting business, to some degree, it's your job to find out when people stub their toe, to, to find, to scour their past and find where they may have made a mistake or said something they probably wish they'd said differently. How has it changed? How has this book or that experience changed you in what you do for a living? Oh, it, it's changed it dramatically, man, because you could look, and I tell my kids this all the time, and my oldest is eight, and I just had to give him his first computer because he needs it for class next week. And I, I, call, I talk to college students all the time, and I tell them, guys, you could say something now at 10, 11, 12 years old on Twitter and Facebook, and it could come back to bite you when you're 30 or 35 years old. And I think that sucks because, you know, kids are going to be kids. And your, your brain really does it. Hey, if you're a woman, you reach maturity probably in your 20s. If you're a man, you might be 40, right? We all know that's the truth. And our, we're, we're not always going to be as mature as you are later in life. And you say stupid things. But the problem is, is that now everything you put online is going to come back to haunt you a decade later, two decades later. And look, man, we're all humans. We all evolve. We're just humans going through a human experience. And we all change every single day. And you might have said something stupid 20 years ago. That doesn't mean you're the same person that you are today. Last question. Is it fair that everyone needs to understand cancel culture? In other words, whether you're in politics and business, obviously a, a politician or a business owner understands the new norm, the, the, the way of which people attack businesses and, and the political brand of whatever um, candidate we're talking about. But, but the rank and file American worker, the person who goes to work and mind their own business, why should they be? concerned, worried, because, bothered uh, about cancel culture? Because there is no separation anymore. This, if, if your listeners walk away from this with one thing, you have to understand this. There is no separation between your business life and your personal life anymore. None. None whatsoever. So if you put your personal opinion on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram, that is going to come back to bite you at work. And that's not to say that you shouldn't share your political opinion. You just have to be a lot more careful, or before you know it, three hours later, you could be losing your job, and you won't be able to provide for your family. And nobody wants to see that, because that would really suck. Good deal. Under Fire, 13 Rules for Surviving Cancel Culture. Wesley Donahue is the author. Uh, Wes, where can they find the book? How can they purchase it? Uh, you can go to underfirebook.com, but Amazon, uh, everybody buys your books at Amazon these days, so just, just go there. Good deal. Hey, good to talk to you. Good luck in the future. And um, I know you're, Wes is one of these uh, endurance. What's the longest race? And I'm not talking about riding a bike or a car. What is the longest <laughs> race you've done start to finish um, running? Six weeks ago, I attended my first 100-miler. I broke my foot on mile 50. I hobbled to mile 71 before I had to quit. So 71 miles is the answer, but I'm going for my second attempt at a 100-miler in December. Good deal, man. Wish you luck. Good to talk to you. Thank you. And I'll, I'll, I'll pass across soon, I'm sure. Thank you very much. That's kind of an interesting guy. Hmm. and He runs a company called Push Digital. That um, I mean, Wes, for, for, for argument, I mean, for just for edification, the Wes was the podcaster before there was podcasting that Jakey Knotts made the very unfortunate, I mean, I can repeat this because it's just me repeating it. Right. Um, Jakey was asked about Nikki Haley running for governor, 
And he said, we've already got one raghead at the White House. We don't need another in the governor's mansion. He that got was a little on, intention for that. I mean, that. That was on Wes's, what we'd call today, a podcast. Back in the day, I don't think it was referred to um, as that. I mean, I'm in the middle of that because I'm running for lieutenant governor and all that happens. And I'm like, whoa, I don't have anything to say about that. <laughs> you know, they would call and, uh, as a Republican office holder running or in pursuit of another Republican office. And um, But yeah, Wes was the guy that hosts a, um, a podcast where Jackie said that. Now, here's what Wes did. He didn't release any of the uh, the hard copy. In other words, uh, you know, Jakey said it, no doubt about it, but Wes wouldn't provide CNN or any of the other NBC, ABC news reached out to him. And I think he offered uh, fairly lucrative amounts of money. And Wes said, no, I'm not going. In other words, I'll let them sort that out um, the best way they can. But under fire, 13 rules for surviving cancel culture. And the guy really understands that part of the business. He um, owns a company called Dish Push, uh, Push Digital that is a um, kind of a, a digitally, uh, what am I trying to say here? It's not the typical way you run campaigns. In other words, you've got the the grassroots, you've got the road, I mean, excuse me, the billboards and yard signs, you've got television and radio advertising, but you've also got these Facebook and YouTube ads and website presence and how many clicks and hits and, and browses do you get? How do you get listed higher on the Google search engine than others? That's something that um that Push Digital has done well for candidates. Um, and I knew this. I knew that Wes had done less in South Carolina and more at the national level. Eight four three six six one. And he runs long distance marathons. Yeah, I think so he um seventy one miles going for a hundred. If I'm not mistaken, wow. his shoe broke. I mean I know this is crazy, but the shoe something happened to his shoe at about mile just shy of seventy miles that he ran another two or three miles but gave out at about mile seventy one. He and I have exchanged emails recently about, you know, my um my pursuits in, in health and fitness and his pursuit. He's a good bit younger than I am, but, um, yeah, I have, have kind of a, um, a similar passion for, um, exercise and fitness. Once again, um, I just can't run that far. I got hips mm-hmm. that just won't let me run. Um, and plus, you know, Wes is a, um, kind of a small guy, you know, built for running. Uh, when you're over 200 pounds and run, they call you a Clydesdale and they don't mean <laughs> it to be insulting. I mean, there, there just aren't a lot of runners over 200 pounds and, I'm a touch over 200. Uh, today's Monday. I'm probably more than a touch over over 200. Yeah, I had Just an insurance policy. Uh, my brother and I, well, I had a buy sale, and the lady said, how much do you weigh? I said, Monday or Friday? She said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, I weigh exactly the same thing on Friday and exactly the same uh, thing on Monday, except for the couple of weeks after uh, we take a vacation, and I let some of the um, some of the nutritional norms go by the wayside <laughs> and uh, indulge myself in other sorts of things. Do we have a call? Uh, we do. Uh, okay. I thought we did. Let's go to the phone. It's Carl. Hey, Carl. Hey, what's going on? Hey, Carl. Um, Ken, this guy that was just on, he, he came this close to promoting a small business and said, oh, you can just, you can just buy my book at Amazon. And, um, so, I mean, He's he's a small business guy, right? He is. Carl, what did you just click over the speakerphone? No, wait a minute. Let's see what happened. Yeah, well, something happened. Yeah. How's that? That's better. Yeah, Much better. Okay. I don't know what happened. Um, yeah, he 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 came this close to doing the right thing, but he sure did. Go he sure did. With, yeah, with with um, and and another thing, you you brought up like these small companies 
sell into the sell into the big companies. I tell you know I tell kids all the time they want to go into business for themselves, but they don't want to work any place to start with. The way and you know this, Ken, because you've been in business. The way you go into business for yourself is you work for somebody who's in business, mm-hmm. and then you kind of understand the inside and see what they're outsourcing, and then you build your business and hopefully. Um, well, I hopefully you normally can usually become a, a provider for them, but that's happened in all these other other companies like um, these computer companies. You'll have people working there for a while, and then they'll see that they can, you know, uh, do some kind of in a, some kind of technical innovation, and then they'll sell it to Google or Microsoft or whatever, and so. I mean, that's just kind of how that works. Well, explain. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that. Yeah, he almost said you can yeah. buy it from, and then it was like Amazon because they such a dom- they're such a dominant force in the world of um, buying and selling books. <laughs> and well, I think you really- said everybody gets their books from Amazon. Yeah, everybody gets their books. I think that everybody gets their books from Amazon. Carl's exactly right. The majority of businesses are started by somebody who worked in a business and understood um you know there's an old saying in business instead of making this guy all this money why wouldn't i try to make you know myself all this money the point i've tried to make and the point i'm trying to express i mean it's always been hard to start and run your own business it should be because you make um, a lot of money if you're successful at it um but but a lot of the regulatory authorities and a lot of the tax i mean it's just it's gotten to be real real burdensome and i'm afraid if we aren't careful we're going to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. And I think the small businessmen and women of this country are the heart and soul, uh, the, the, the backbone of the American economy. And it seems to me we are intentionally, intentionally is the key word here, making their life more difficult, more complicated, and less prosperous. And if you make people's life more difficult, more complicated, less prosperous, they'll find something else to do. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. One of the issues that I find very interesting is some of these ancillary hearings and and trials that are going on. Steve Bannon, to begin with, was a central figure of Trump's ascent. Not so much um, recently, but his trial begins today. This contempt of Congress. And Jared Halpert is with us from our nation's capital, Fox News Radios. I'm Jared. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? I. I am understanding. Once again, I am a kind of a um, I know a little bit about politics, not as much about about the law. But once U.S. District Court Judge Carl Nichols ruled that Bannon's lawyers could not argue for executive privileges, didn't that kind of end any defense he may or may not have? Well, we'll see. <laughs> That's certainly uh, the argument that. Um, that that his uh, attorneys have made. That the uh, legal team for Steve Bannon also has tried uh, a couple of times unsuccessfully to get this uh, trial delayed. Uh, they argue that it's uh, going to be impossible to, to get a fair jury with the uh, January 6th committee's uh, hearings continuing to move forward. Now, the judge has basically not outright rejected that, but said, listen, jury selection starts Monday, so it starts today. Let's see, right? <laughs> Let's see if we can get a fair jury. And obviously a, a federal judge can... Um, uh, you know, step in whenever they need to. But but you're right. The idea of executive privilege is when it has been rejected uh, by courts previously because Steve Bannon 
uh, on January 6th, to your point, didn't work at the White House, right? He wasn't a, a White House aide. He wasn't a an advisor in any official capacity to the president. He was a private citizen. And so their argument is that, you know, executive privilege can't extend beyond the office of the president. Um, and so that's why uh, a lot of those uh, defense motions have been rejected in, in pretrial hearings. Uh, that being said, that the, the prosecution has said that they expect this to be a pretty quick trial. Um, you know, they're going to call a couple of witnesses. They're going to show that, you know, Bannon did not comply with the subpoena, and, and they're going to hope that, that that's enough. We'll see how long that the trial actually lasts. These are two misdemeanor counts, by the way. So he's facing two misdemeanor counts for criminal contempt of Congress, one for refusing to testify, one for refusing to produce materials that have been um, uh, listed in, in the subpoena. Um, jury selection begins this morning, and that's the first step. Um, you know, usually that's not too lengthy a process, but, but obviously there are uh, objections that the defense counsel can make in, in trying to, to remove jurors, and, and we'll see how successful some of those uh, actions are later today. Jared, uh, Bannon, and this sounds just like Steve Bannon, is going to be the misdemeanor from hell. I mean, those are his words. That's what not- he has said, but again, I think a lot of that was predicated on his defense trying to put forward a lot of other, you know, pieces of evidence that, you know, tried to sort of undermine the January 6th committee that, that the judge has said aren't admissible in this case. Um, so, yeah, there was a thought. And, and initially when, when Bannon was charged, he kind of insinuated that this was going to be a long process, that this was going to drag out. He called it, to your point, the misdemeanor from hell. Uh, the prosecution, the Justice Department doesn't believe that that's going to be the case. They, they say this is going to be a pretty close, uh, a pretty quick trial, potentially even, you know, a, a handful of days. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, we'll see again what kind of theatrics may be at play. But a lot of this has been sort of predetermined in, in the pretrial motions that go forward as both sides sort of lay out what evidence is and isn't admissible and the judge, you know, sort of uh, beforehand sort of setting out the ground rules, right? That's normal for any trial, by the way. Um, And that has happened over the last several months with this judge saying, listen, you know, we're going to be focused on the issue of contempt of Congress. Um, The other thing that is sort of noteworthy to watch is recall that in the days leading up to this, Bannon has now you know, said that he is willing to testify. He says that, uh, you know, former President Trump has waived this executive privilege. Um, there has not been an agreement yet reached between Bannon and the January 6th committee, so there was no testimony set. The Justice Department says that's not going to matter, that this has not been charges to try and compel testimony. These are charges to punish noncompliance. And so even if there were potentially a deal reached between the January 6th committee and Steve Bannon, doesn't necessarily mean that these charges from DOJ are going to be dropped. Very well explained. Jared, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Sure thing. You too. That's a very legal um, legal uh, iteration of where we are with the Steve. It's kind of interesting to me. Uh, how many people associated with Trump have had legal trouble? I mean, when you really think about it, um, and I'm, I'm trying to go through a list here. Maybe I try to con- compile a list of all the people associated with the Trump presidency. And I don't want to say all, but the majority of at some point in time had a, uh, kind of a rub of the law. Hey, and uh, is it fair and equal? Try, I don't have any idea. You know, what is fair and equal in that world uh, of Washington and insiderism and, you know, which team you're on and, and, you know, what the government decides to do or not to do. Um, 
but Bannon is going to be probably found guilty of contempt of Congress. And um, it'll be very interesting if he's found guilty of contempt of Congress. Um, it still doesn't force him to appear. He just found guilty of being in contempt of Congress. Uh, and apparently he's uh, negotiating to appear right now. But, but, but from what I've read, um, were you issued a subpoena? Yes. Did you receive the subpoena? Yes. Did you obey the issuance of the subpoena? No. Well, you're in contempt of Congress. And, and once the courts, once the judge, who's a Trump appointee, uh, refused to allow executive privileges, because once again, as Jared said, Bannon didn't work at the White House when we're talking about this. Bannon has agreed, and Trump has agreed to allow Bannon, go te- you know, go up here. I mean, go testify. Give whatever testimony you want to give about January 6th. Um, but Bannon's one of those ruffians that I think would be a lot of fun to watch. You know, there's kind of a, to me, there's been a bit of an evolving strategy on the January 6th commission. Um, the people that believe it's it's uh, it's trying to transact the nation's business are never going to change their mind. Those who believe it's a witch hunt are going to always believe that. So for those who believe it's a witch hunt, why not have Bannon appear? I mean, he's pretty articulate. Uh, he's not afraid. Uh, to, to West Donahue's point, he's not afraid to be canceled at all. I mean, he's already shown that he will tell you what he believes and what he thinks. And I think Bannon is probably one of the unsung heroes. And I mean, he got a lot of credit to begin with. And then he and Trump, remember, they had this kind of a, um, I'm going to imagine Trump getting sideways with somebody. I think West made a very interesting point about Trump saying things that most people don't say because most people believe there's a chance they're wrong. You know, so I want to be careful, but I say this because there's a chance I could be wrong. Trump never believes he's wrong. Therefore, he's willing to say anything. However, I don't want to say asinine or ludicrous because some of what he said is asinine nor ludicrous. It's just matter of fact in a world that doesn't really appreciate nor welcome um, people who say things in a matter of fact way. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, I, I I think uh, to a degree you're uh, right about Trump, but uh, the thing about it is, uh, in so many instances, he did so many good things. He came in there and started fixing things, and you can't have that in government where you actually fix things and do away with regulations that are strangling the golden geese every day. I mean, that, that there's been a war on small business for decades, for as, as long as I can remember, in one form or another, trying to wipe out the small operator in, in uh, favor of the larger and centralized operators. And when we get to that point, it's very dangerous because you get in situations like we had with infant formula. There is no reason for there to ever be any shortage of infant formula short of a, a huge nuclear exchange. In the in the U.S., there's absolutely none whatsoever, and the FDA is uh, playing picking winners and losers losers when they should be trying to regulate an industry and trying to make sure there are certain standards. But that's not what they're doing. They're uh, abusing the system and using regulation to strangle down every competitor that's out there that's not uh, beholden to and. Uh, paying tithes to the uh, powers that be that's uh that's just my view about it but i i think the problem with trump is he was actually fixing things for the first time in my lifetime he uh you had a, a president that tried to do the right thing 
and uh, they went absolutely bat doo doo crazy. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Is the America First movement anti corporate? I mean, we know it's anti globalist. We know it's anti interventionist, right? I mean, if you if you listen to Blake Masters or J.D. Vance or Josh Hawley or Rand Paul or any of the others who profess to be a member of the America First movement, and we're going to let America First candidates and nominate America First candidates, elect America First senators and House members and, uh, you know, members of the General Assembly in the varying states, uh, that's an anti-globalist, anti-interventionist See, I don't think America movement. First should be anti-corporate. Now, it should be anti-corporate influence of our government. But can you be... Can you be um, one and not the other? I mean, if you're anti-corporations unduly or or disproportionately affecting government policy, um, is that the way corporations operate today? Um, You know, the the corporations design relationships, or they basically create, cultivate relationships with the government. Out of that cultivating of a relationship comes policy. and the America firster doesn't believe the policy gives small business a fair shake or the American working class a fair shake. So in essence, I guess the point I'm raising is, you know, it's going to be hard for a lot of Republicans to fix their mouth and say, you know, I'm opposed to big corporations in America today because we believe or historically we believed that corporations earn their share. You know, they earn their place in, in the market. They um, If they've got 38% of the market of home building material or retail sales, then they've obviously earned that. I mean, I don't think you buy that anymore. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, <laughs> but I think there was a day that you and I first started down this road that you were like, Ken, no, man. I mean, if Walmart's better at it than anybody, they're just better at it than anybody. Yeah. If Target's better at it, if Lowe's or Home Depot are better at it, we're picking on some of the big boxes, but that would be um, some of their cozy relationships we're talking about doesn't mean that Home Depot doesn't do a good job or Lowe's doesn't do a good job. But but if you need a load of lumber and there are 30 places to go, isn't capitalism better served than if you need a load of lumber and there are three or four places to go, two of which have national you know advantages? I, I just think you've got to we got to really understand the mindset of America first when it comes to corporations in America today. And are we or are we not? We know we're not for globalism. I mean, we've weighed that. But the majority of America Firsters have said globalism good, globalism bad. The globalism bad hand is a lot more full than the globalism good hand. What about corporate America? What if we did the same thing with intervention and American imperialism as we've done? What as we've done with um? I mean, I'm thinking of China. I mean, the, the relationship America has with China that there's good and there's bad. We've waited. We America Firsters have decided. The, the cozy relationship American corporations and our government have had with China are, are more bad than good. Intervention, more bad than good. Globalism, more bad than good. What about corporate America? What about big business? I mean, are we ready now to say on corporate America, the big business, the S&P 500, the top, you know, the, the, the biggest 100 uh, American domiciled companies in the world, um, the they have so advantage themselves in the marketplace, not by making better widgets, not by providing better services, but they've lobbied the government to get such an upper hand in the marketplace that we America Firsters are ready to do something about that. We know we're ready to do something about intervention. We know we're ready to do something about globalism. We know we want to deal with China in a very different sort of way. Are we ready to deal with American corporations? When we Mm -hmm. go to Washington, and America First is not just a 
uh, a powerful political force. It is a force responsible for creating policy. Or we're going to create policy that disadvantages corporate America. We believe the establishment has created policies that disadvantage small business. Are we going to create policy that disadvantages corporate America? Are we going to punish a company for having an excess of 5,000 employees? Wow. Really? The Republican Party is going to do that? I think that's the debate we're going to have to have at some point in time. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Let's ask two questions. What is a small business and what is pro-small business policy? I mean, that's kind of an interesting question. I mean, is, is a company with 300 employees a small business? I mean, to me, you start creeping into big business. Uh, 200, 250 employees is a, I mean, smaller than that is a small business. Here's where you get in trouble. What, what are the, the gross revenues? Um, because a, a company making a dollar widget, it may be a $10 million business, a company selling automobiles or some other sort of expensive. Uh, in other words, you may have a company that is in the business of selling a product and the product is really expensive. Still a small business, but one one of those sales is a million dollars. You see where I'm headed. So the gross revenue number could could be. I mean, it could swing from one extreme to another. Um, and but but the better question. I mean, once we've established what we agree is small business, what sort of policies? What sort of policies do we believe give small business the ability to compete with with the big boys? I mean, isn't that kind of what we're asking? I mean, we believe the big boys have an advantage, too, too unfair an advantage. They didn't earn that advantage. They lobbied for that advantage. There's a good way to say it. Um, they didn't get out and, and in the street and just, you know, beat the competition. They sent two lobbyists to Washington, and out of that came some sort of legislation. Yeah, they have enough revenue for that large line item well, I mean, for lobbying expenses. And, and here's the deal, Rev. A lot of people believe that big business doesn't like regulation. Big business isn't bothered by regulation because they have the the budget and staff to uh, you know afford people to deal with. Uh, in other words, they got a staff influence. of accountants and lawyers. And you know the small business person, man or woman, says, "Man, I don't have enough money to hire a lawyer full time or to hire an accountant full time. I had to farm all of those sorts of things out." So when you hear business doesn't like regulation, by and large, and philosophically, business doesn't like regulation, but big business, I mean, big business doesn't like it. But it likes the fact that they have the revenue and the staff and the and the labor pool to negotiate whatever comes their way, knowing that small business doesn't. So if a so if a regulation requires an enormous amount of paperwork, let's say Obamacare. I mean Obamacare comes down the pike, all of a sudden businesses have to adjust accordingly, and out of that comes, you know, a big business that hires two people to do nothing but deal with the rules and regulations of Obamacare. A small business, I mean, I can tell you this as a small business owner, I mean, my family's business couldn't afford to hire two people to try and work through all the intricacies of health care and Obamacare and, and retirement plans and pension plans. So so the next thing you know, a $250 million a year truck body manufacturing business, would they would absorb that cost because they believe that cost would give them more market share because their competition, who had a much smaller footprint, just couldn't absorb it. I mean, we'd say I can't make any money, and because I can't make any money, either I'm going out of business or I'll sell to one of the uh, one of the big boys. And uh, this is kind of interesting. And I said something earlier this morning, and I said it a little bit without knowing what I'm talking about here. But I went back and checked. Uh, I said that a lot of the innovation comes from small business, and the big business will go buy the small business, and a lot of that comes the innovation. And, and you don't blame the guy. I mean, if the guys come up with a with the latest greatest widget. 
and he's in a you know a five million dollar a year business and along comes a 500 million dollar a year business and they don't have to uh, they don't have to technology would be like this and we've seen computer companies come up i mean paypal you know rich uh, B, uh peter Thiel and and elon musk invented paypal and then they sold it uh you know to a, another group of hedge funds or capital uh, venture capitalists or or capital asset managers and out of that came you know a bigger and bigger and bigger company do you have a call we do okay let's go there steve in florence hey steve hey morning guys um yeah, uh, there's a, an assault weapon ban that's going to be put near the house next week or something. It looks like 40-something AKs and 30-something ARs um, that prevents the manufacturer transfer and um, some other crap. Um, but, yeah, that affects small businesses right there. I love my local gun stores. I, I will go there before I go to Walmart and buy ammo or big box store to buy a firearm but if they can't get the firearms in there that's gonna hurt them so yeah what you guys do with that thank you steve so what sort of policy would empower small business someone just sent me a text a second ago a pretty good explanation um to them a small business is somebody running the business in the building there's not a board there, there's not a, a director that goes and you know it's just not run like a um a layer of management and a layer of management and another layer of management and a department head meets with this department head and out of that comes you know the direction it's it's somebody when you call that business and say hey who does the buck stop with and they say john smith is john smith there yeah hold on just a minute let me get mr smith for you that's the i mean that's not the technical definition of small business but i get it i think that's a pretty good explanation mm-hmm. take a break back in just a minute Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. We have with us this morning from Chicago, Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Morning, guys. Doing well. So GM and a pilot company are planning or talking or organizing to build a coast-to-coast EV fast-charging network. Tell us about it. Uh, in, in doing so to help uh, fix so-called range anxiety, uh, announcing the build-out of a coast-to-coast Ultium Charge 360 network, as they call it, at Pilot and Flying J gas stations across the country, east to, east to west, north to south, city to city, they say, uh, of over 2,000 D.C. fast-charging stations at over 500 locations. And there will also be 350-kilowatt charges. Uh, what that means is that they're the fast chargers, and you can charge uh, at a very fast rate of, of energy in your vehicle. So you can put about uh, 150 miles per uh, in, uh, of range in your vehicle in about 10 minutes. Uh, that's what they mean by the, the, the fast chargers. And, and so uh, that's what they're doing, their part, to, to roll out more charging stations uh, GM's previously announced over $750 million in investments in community charging stations uh, in its commitment to zero emissions future. You know, the company's going uh, all electric along with others uh, within the next 10, 15 years. This on top of the federal government spending $5 billion to build a uh, half million chargers, uh, money that's going to states who have until late summer to submit their plans on, 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 uh, on how and, and where they're going to get these, these fast chargers or, or, or any types of chargers uh, in. Because, you know, when you think about buying an electric car, you think, okay, well, that's great, um, but where do I charge it? 
and and that's a big problem. In fact, it's one of the biggest problems that the industry says that that, uh, that is why people are just not buying electric cars because of range anxiety and not knowing where to charge those things. Jeff, is this government subsidized or is this a, a partnership between two private companies with no government assistance? Yeah, we're we're told that this is a partnership between GM and and Pilot, uh, according to uh, the, uh, the the people that we talked to, Travis Hester, GM VP of EV Growth and Operations, on uh, last week ahead of the announcement. So, um, and, and it's going to have to be, um, you know, we're going to have to see more and more investments uh, in this, a lot of private investments, uh, because you know there's a lot of money to be made as well in in, in these projects, and so. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, right now, there's not enough charging stations uh, across the country, and, and it's a big, big problem. If that if that's where we're going to an all-electric future, you better have these things in place because people are going to need them. Let me ask you this, Jeff. You would be uh, far better informed than I am about this. And I've read and heard anecdotal stories about, you know, the car that had a 350-mile range now has a 148-mile range because the battery's not as good as it was. This is after three years of use. And now they can't find the replacement battery and the affordability. Yeah. Of the re- I mean, this is a lot more complicated than the American public have been led to believe. It's really complicated. Plus, you know, when, when we go to an all-electric future, what happens to the old batteries? What do we do with them? Uh, you know, how do we continue to to say that these, these cars are green when we're continuously, you know, uh, you know, uh, mining for, for nickel? Uh, and, 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 uh, and, you know, as some opponents of, of, of EVs say, you know, destroying, destroying our, our land uh, in, in, in countries across, uh, across the world. Um, but batteries are batteries. They, they work and then, they, and then they're, you know, they're, they, they don't work as well. And then you have to replace them. And it's just like anything else these days where we're having a problem finding replacements. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that is a problem right now. But, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> how do you fix it? My friend, I, I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Jeff. Really, really appreciate it. You're always very informative yeah. on these sorts of things and very, and very real. And we appreciate the authenticity of which you debate these uh, or inform us about these issues at hand. Thank you very much. You bet. You can, uh, I've said before, Jeff is a radio host waking, waiting to happen. <laughs> I mean, can't you... Just, it's right there I mean, on the tip of his tongue. Oh, it was there. I mean, it was like, okay, let me level with you. It's 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 pie in the sky. I mean, it's nonsense. It's They're not crazy. really having a serious discussion about how the electricity is generated for these, uh, and what it how it how you have to increase your electric grid to support all electric vehicles. Have they had a serious discussion about no, that? No, they've not had it. We've never had a, dis- a serious discussion about this. We've got a program. We've, we've got government enthusiasm. But in America today, that's good enough. I mean, if, if AOC says it, half the country believe it. Mm-hmm. If Trump says it, the other half believe it. These are very serious, complicated matters. And this is not anecdotal. And I know it's not anecdotal, but I didn't want to put Jeff in a bad place and compromise his journalistic integrity. But I was told and have read that and and one of the uh, one of the leading brands of electric cars and one of the respected brands of electric cars after about three years the advertised you know the range is 350 miles it goes down to about 180 or 90 miles and then you you got to charge it about every hundred so in other words you couldn't go to Columbia and back I mean you'd run out of juice by the time you got uh, back from Columbia and you know when you inquire about the battery 
It's twice as much as they were told, and its availability is, is far more scarce than we ever imagined. And I get, I mean, I understand development stages. I understand the, the evolution of leaving one, you know, a way of transporting people from point A to point B. I mean, I get it. I mean, I, I would imagine the trains were behind. You know, the airlines were behind to begin with. I mean, there's always a, a growing period in all of this, and I respect that. But but the, these folks who are in charge of making policy and, and kind of directing the economy in one direction or another are just selling this as if it's all win. I mean, it's a win, win, win. I think those are Biden and Obama's word. It's a win, win, win. I mean, we save the planet. You know, we uh, we don't depend on people who hate our guts for energy and and we're saving money. I mean, none of this is going to be true. It's going to be, I mean, to believe we can transition, this goes back to, I mean, the, 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 the silliness of taking Biden seriously on that debate stage is when he said, we're going to emit zero carbon by 2035. I mean, that's in, in 13 years, we're going to not emit any carbon. I mean, he's talking about, you know, cruise ships and and, and farming and, and you know, earth-moving equipment. I mean, the lunacy Jet of that. Jet airplanes. Yeah. I mean, let's let's put a windmill on one of these, um you know, metal tubes that we fly 600 miles an hour and, you know, 500 people inside of it. It's, the absurdity of that. It, it's really, it's laughable if it weren't serious. I mean, if it were a Saturday Night Live skit, we could all laugh at it and move on. But it's not a Saturday Night Live skit. I mean, it's real. These people genuinely or some people genuinely believe that we're almost there with the precipice of, of, of ridding this earth from the contamination of fossil fuels. I mean, I've got friends who are smart people who believe this nonsense. And I just kind of like, well, okay, I don't want to argue with you, so I'll let it be. Um, I mean, I've got really, really good friends of mine who will send me articles and opine loudly and proudly about how close we are to, you know, just completely revolutionizing personal transportation. We're not anywhere near close to doing that. Um, General Motors and Ford have been directed and subsidized, and and Chrysler and some of these other companies. Um, the, the most profitable part of Tesla's building is steel, or business model is steel, the remarketing of green energy tax credits. I mean, that's still how they make more money than any other way. Once again, I'm not opposed to renewables. I'm certainly not opposed to electric cars. I would rather us find a way to not buy oil from Saudi Arabia or Russia or any of these other countries who hate our guts. I wouldn't I would be far more supportive of that. But I'm not going to buy the line, hook, line, and sinker of what AOC or Joe Biden says that in twelve or thirteen years we're going to be a place where the gasoline car will be like, you know, um chicken pox. Yeah, just because they said it and they're going to try I mean they don't seem to care about the amount of pain they inflict on us to try to make these things happen but well, it's I mean, not going to happen but, anyway. but see like the AOCs of the world i don't think she understands it but the but the, if we get there naturally in other words the technology does the marketplace advance. the marketplace sure and the prices of the cars come down and there is a, a chance or a point where that will cross i believe and you know by the way i think electric cars are cool i mean i've not seen a tesla that i didn't think looked cool sure on the road. And then let's so get I'm all there. For it. But, but let the marketplace dictate the pace. Let the marketplace dictate some of the realities. And, and we just not, we, we refuse to do that. Instead, we convince the American people that we're almost there and we're not. And you can hear in Jeff's voice. I mean, he almost, he laughs while he's saying these things. Um, GM and Pilot are, you know, joining together to provide infrastructure that will allow people who choose to drive electric cars to find uh, more reasonable ways to charge. Okay, good. But I mean, that should be a part of this process. 
but but Biden has said, you know, we're going to stop burning fossil fuel by the year 2035. And there are some people out there who believe that. I mean, I understand the ignorance. I understand the dumb. I understand people who are stupid believing what, but I mean, I've got intelligent friends that believe we're almost there. They'll send me an article from Esquire or Salon or Huffington Post. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, that's the Huffington Post. They're not going to shoot you straight. That they're, they're propagandizing on behalf of this green energy movement that, that at some point in time may get its feces consolidated and become a, a legitimate way to transport people. From, but right now, we're nowhere near there. We're nowhere. We're not even in inning one of a nine. Well, maybe one, inning one or two of a nine inning baseball game. There is much to be done. Let the marketplace dictate the pace. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Hi, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, you know, Barney Fife would have called some of these people naive. I guess naive, but here, here would be a great trivia question. Who is Gordon Matthew Thomas Sumner? I'll answer it. His name is Sting, Sting. Uh, as we would call it back in the old days, uh, the police. Great lyric. Poets, priests, and politicians have words to thank for their positions. And we can add, add the, the press, pundits, hacks, lobbyists. And I had this on my mind, Ken. Uh, you remember uh, former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker? Mm-hmm. The man went to England. Why the heck would he go to England anyway? But he was a candidate for president. And they asked him about evolution. And he says, well, I think I'm going to punt on that. What a great opportunity. In England, the guy could have said, you know, the reason there is a USA, somebody said they are endowed by their creator. What a great opportunity. And the only reason I got Walker on my mind is Herschel. I think Herschel is finding out that as much as Larry Munson loved him, the, the, the corporate media is like Larry Munson against him. So I had this, I, I thought about you, Ken, you, you said you met a man at the gas pump at one time. This is how they got to go on the offense on this. We need to have commercials or all these candidates. Let's have somebody, I'll use example in Georgia, Biden hat, Warnock t-shirt. Uh, we're so excited about Joe Biden. Gas price, $2 as they're pumping the gas. Let's see them today. 450 gas. Hmm, I don't know if I'm so excited about uh, Joe Biden. And then while this is going on, you have a, a guy who looks like Mayor Pete rides by on a bicycle and waves at him. And that's the future of these green cars. And you can do the same thing in a grocery store. Man has to go out to get change out of his car to pay for his groceries. There's Mayor Pete looking guy waving at him on a bicycle. And you can go to the inner cities. Uh, somebody that found out that a loved one got murdered by somebody that has got out of jail 11 times. Kamala Harris was bailing them out or no bail at all. We've got to get on the offensive. Leave you at that. Thank you, David. I mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, we can't be uh, reactive. We've got to be proactive. We've got to make the left um, deal with the changes that we want to bring about to the way we, we govern. One of the most interesting things said over the weekend, and maybe I read too much into a single word. I mean, may, maybe I try to, you know, complicate things that aren't or don't necessarily have to be that complicated, but Jill Biden said over the weekend 
that her husband had so many hopes when he got into office. Have you read that or seen no, that comment? I haven't heard this. Yeah, I mean, she was um, flustered. She spoke at a fundraiser with the Democratic National Committee, I think Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. And the, she the said last her thing husband, I heard was the taco thing well, from I mean, her she, last okay, week. Okay, well, she's spoken since then. Okay. And she said her husband, and here's the key word to me, had so many hopes and plans for things he wanted to do. Um, we talked about the New York Times poll that showed 64%, that's two of three, uh, Democrat voters would refer, refer uh, prefer another candidate other than Joe Biden. And But that single word was a word to me of concession, uh, you know, waving the white flag, I give up. Uh, once again, maybe, maybe she misspoke again, but she didn't say he has so many hmm. um, hopes. He has so many plans. He has so many things he wants to get done. She said, and I quote, the exact quote, you ready? Says the Daily Mail. Um, Joe had so many hopes and plans for things he wanted to do. That's, I mean, that's to me, that's kind of a resignation to this isn't going as we expected. Combine that with the Guardian having an op-ed by Robert Reich. What did what did Rush call Robert Reich? Reich. Uh, yeah, he says that um, Biden's too old. I mean, he just basically says uh, there's another article in the Wall Street Journal that says you know when when a 79 when an 80 year old man wakes up between two and four in the morning, it's not to think about what to do with China. It's to go to the bathroom. You know, or, or to, to, to pray about a grandkid. In other words, if you're 80 years old and you're waking up between 2 and 4 in the morning, we hope and pray you're not waking up to, uh, concerned about what's going on in, in Beijing or in Ukraine. Uh, that's for 50- and 60-year-old men who are very capable uh, intellectually and, uh, you know, uh, emotionally and physically to deal with these sorts of things. But I think what Rife says and then that thing I read of the uh, that thing I read the article I read of the Wall Street Journal combined with um, Jill Biden that there, there's a resignation now that that I think realize this guy's just not up for the job and and the point I'd make Rev as I tried to make it last week what about Joe Biden led you to believe he was going to be good at this I mean if you really he he said something the other day you know back when I got to Washington in the early seventies. <laughs> You know if you remember that or not. Biden is the epitome of working at the paper mill so long you don't believe it stinks. I mean, the people that ride by the paper mill, whoo, must be making paper today. But if you work at the paper mill for 30 years, it becomes a part of your life. You don't smell it any longer. <laughs> so, so when Yano rides by the paper mill and says, that stinks, and I worked there 40 years, I'm going like, I don't smell it. Uh, Biden is the epitome of someone who has worked at the paper mill so long they don't think it stinks anymore. In fact, he says that in a way. He was bragging. To, yeah, I mean, to garner respect. <laughs> you know, you better listen to me because I've been here since 73. And the majority of Americans are going like, you're, that's why we don't like you, man. That's why we think you were going to suck at the job to begin with. Because you worked at the paper mill so long, you can't smell it anymore. And we need people. There you go. There's a new slogan. We need people who can smell the stink. That, that is Washington, D.C. And the irony is, he stinks. Yeah. So I mean, he sucks go. at the job. And I think everybody now, even as, um, even the Trump critic, I think, well, now, I mean, you, you hardly ever hear people say, Trump sucked and Biden's good at what he does. It's Trump sucked. And the weather's not been bad this week. <laughs> you know, or Trump sucked 
and the Gamecocks play yeah. in a month or so. The Tigers play in a month or so. It's no longer. I think they. I mean, I, I just I sense this this um kind of introspective resignation that the left has with okay, we beat Trump. Whether you did it fair and square or not, we beat Trump. But good God, look at what we've got. And I think David is is point on. Um, what are we going to do? Let's not just beat Joe Biden. Let's force change on the American political system. Take a break. Back in just a few minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Trivia on the way in just a few moments. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. William in McCall. Hey, William. How you doing, Dave? Ken? Hey, William. Morning. You know, y'all talk about the electric cars. You know, you got an 18-wheeler. You got regular vehicles. They all have alternators on them that charges their battery. You mean to tell me as smart as these people are, they can't come up with a system that will charge that battery while you're going down the road? Like they do 18-wheelers and other vehicles? That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you, William. Appreciate the call. Yeah, every car has an, not every car, the majority of our cars have alternators that recreate or create an ability to charge the battery while you're going down the road. law of perpetual motion that the... I don't have any idea. I mean, what is different about the batteries? I mean, we're talking about an old, what is it, a zinc oxide battery in comparison to one of these, um, what's the new models? I mean, it's lithium and ions and, and all these other sorts. Of, the, the technology, here's what I've gathered. I'll speak to you as I understand it. We've always had the ability to, to, to basically cobble together hundreds of ions, and all of a sudden we're doing thousands of ions, and it becomes, I mean, a lithium ion and, you know, 100 here and 100 there, but all of a sudden it's 1,000 here and 1,000 there. And, I, and to me, that's kind of the breakthrough in, in technology. Where it leads from here, I don't have any idea. But I can tell you this, we're better off if we let the marketplace dictate when it makes sense to drive uh, an electric car from wherever it is you want to go to wherever it is you are, wherever it is you are to wherever it is you want to go. Um, but we're not doing that. I mean, we're, we're hell-bent on um, expediting the process via uh, government and order and edict. And I just I go back to Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman always said, you know, the great discoveries of man, the great creations that have improved all of our lives, innovations, um, you know, inventions have all happened or by and large have happened. I mean, very few have happened in a, in a government laboratory. They, they mostly all happened in the private sector. And, and we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, a small business makes the latest, greatest widget. The big business says, I'm not going to compete with that latest and greatest widget. I'll just buy the company. I mean, I'll just pay the guy that invented the latest, greatest widget enough money for him to never have to worry about money again in his life. Why am I going to spend a billion dollars to try to build an even later and greater widget when he's kind of done it for me? I gave him $100 million, He'll go home. I'll save $900 million, and we own the patent and right to whatever. And that's just kind of the way the economy is uh, transitioned as we move forward. Mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Harry in Florence is our next caller. Hey, Harry. Good morning. How y'all? Hey, Harry. Uh, Ken, this was something you talked about last week, and I just, it's off topic of today's show, but I recently just graduated from Francis Marion, and um, you were talking about how one in every two professors were liberal, and I just thought this was kind of interesting. No, it's not one, it's not a one of every two, a nine of ten, only one of ten are not liberal. Right. Well, here's an interesting fact that I thought was kind of cool. All of my business professors were all on the right side of things everything else as far as most all the history professors everything else i'd say far left as they come and i got plenty of friends that all go to clemson and carolina and i would say most of them say the same thing 
I mean, I've had been in class before, and I, I won't say their names, but I mean, they would say, "Well, it's the first of the month. You know, don't go out to eat tonight because they give them free money away." Wow. That encourages me. <laughs> it really, it make, makes me feel a little more confident in higher education. Well, I just figured that was a, uh, a fun fact and something interesting that I thought I'd call in. Thank you very much. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you you participating in that. We made a plea last week. There are a lot of you out there that have a lot to say, and you mumble under your breath, and you say it to yourself, and you pound the dash and say, man, I, I, I don't believe that. I don't buy that. I disagree with that, or I agree with it, or I, I want to say something about that. You kind of do, but you don't. And, and we're trying to compel more people into um, calling in and expressing yourself however you see fit. I have heard that in, uh, in economics and business, uh, they're, they're a more conservative opinion. Um, but I also have a daughter at the Darlemore School of Business, and she tells me that in economics and finance, now she's not in a specific business class yet, but a lot of her, the, a lot of the Darlemore School of Business is um is finance and uh, economics and all these others, especially the international school. So um, the professors she's come across, or I don't know if they're business professors as much as they are finance experts and economists and whatnot. And she tells me they're fairly overwhelmingly biased to the left. Um, but but we've heard that that a lot of business professors uh, are a little more conservative than than not. Um, but it's hard for me to buy into the fact that academia is not a bastion for, you know, left of center, the, the left of center mindset or, or liberal dispositions. Uh, I just hope we're getting uh, a little better shake. I hope we're getting, because uh, I think colleges should be um, a place where people can comfortably express their selves and their opinions. And, um, And I look at the number of college-educated voters under the age of 30 that are voting for the Democrat. Are the Republicans, I mean, do we suck at, I mean, I could have asked Wesley Donahue about this, you know, Dish Pudgetal, or or Dish, excuse me, Push Digital. Um, It's kind of a, uh, it's it's a digital uh, political strategy and branding um, marketing business. So do the Democrats do a better job of engaging young voters um, or do young voters just simply like their ideas? Or do colleges make a dramatic impression on the very impressionable mind of America's well, youth? professors are like that uh, UCAL Berkeley professor that went in front of Josh Hawley's hearing last week in any indication. These kids don't have a chance. I mean, how many college professors have ever spoken in support of the Ten Commandments or same-sex marriage or, you know, the, uh, the lunacy of transgenderism? Uh, once again, I think they're there. I think there's some professors who think this is nonsense. I think there's some professors that would say, um, Dr. Ben Kyer, an economics professor at Francis Marion, has been on our show before. And on the air, he says some some um, uh, interesting things about the economy and business and the government's role and responsibility there. So I'm not arguing that every single professor your kid will ever encounter in their academic life will always be liberal. But the overwhelming majority are. It's almost like saying there are no conservative journalists. I mean, there's a conservative journalist or two or three, but they're so overwhelmingly outnumbered. And I think, you know, when you look at academia and the effect and impact it has on young lives, when you look at the media and the effect and impact it has on the information we digest, consume, make heads or tails of, some believe everything they read, some believe nothing they read. But it's there. I mean, it's there to be consumed in some way, shape, or form. 
And it really goes back to Mitt Romney. I mean, you know, I look at Romney. I get so bothered <laughs> by Romney because Romney says now is the time to make concession. Now is the time to compromise. And uh, my Facebook post Saturday was a reference to Springsteen. It's a town full of losers. We're pulling out of here to win. I don't think now's a time for compromise. I don't think now's a time for moderation. I think now is a time to win. And when academia is so one-sided, when the media is so one-sided, when um, a lot of the bureaucratic agencies are so one-sided, um, it was Republican leadership that we counted, depended upon, to make sure you were kind of the safeguard. You know, you made sure we didn't drift further and further and further to the left, and you were there to preserve our liberties and freedoms, and you didn't do it, and you failed. And I think when we do kind of a post-mortem on Trump, I think 50 years from now, or maybe a hundred years from now, when somebody says, "What about this Trump guy?" I mean, he was such a jerk and a butt and narcissist, and well, they all were back then. But I think somebody somewhere, if they're serious about being studious, will say, "Yeah, but I mean, those people felt let down. I mean, those people felt, you know, disenfranchised. They looked at the media, and the media was complicit. They looked at academia, and academia was complicit. They looked at some of the bureaucratic agencies, and they were complicit. The only people they thought had their back." were the Republican office holders, and they didn't. They failed, failed miserably. That's why this Trump guy came along and said real questionable but aggressive things that resonated with the universe of people who just didn't feel anybody was listening to anything they said. It's not going to be much more complicated than that. Did, did Barack Obama help create Donald Trump? Yeah, but I would argue the Bushes and the Romneys and the McCains of the world probably had a bigger hand enforcing the Republican base to consider something other than a Jeb Bush, a Chris Christie, uh, a Marco Rubio. And and here we are. And I'm I'm very proud to be on this side of the coin. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937. Pepsi of Lost Trivia up in about 10 minutes. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there now. Here's Jeff in Florence. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, guys. How y'all doing? Hey, Jeff. Hey, um, kind of getting back. Whenever I went to college and got my little degree, um, I, I know I had liberal professors, but this was early 2000s, and uh, I just don't think that they were as in-your-face with it. Um, it's obvious that I had to have liberal professors, but – it wasn't like they were cramming it down your throat every day and every time they talk, you know, a specific lesson or something like that. So I think one thing that's really changed is that they've always been there, as we know, but I think it's just that, that militant style of how they cram it down your throat now is kind of just obvious and on the forefront of things. And that's why um, the kids today in college and stuff like that are really noticing it. And, um, you know, I, I think that's, you know, one reason why it's so prevalent. And another thing, as far as Obama and then the Bushes and, you know, people making me um, lean towards Trump and the, the 2016 election and, and, what, and whatnot, um, I think what Obama did was bring uh, to attention that the Bushes and the Romneys of the world were just puppets. Um, the, the way Romney rolled over, had a chance to win and didn't, um, the way the Bushes kind of started backing things that Obama were doing, and it just kind of brought to light. And then here, here comes Trump, and he he exposes, you know, the skeleton in the closet of the the Republican Party, which we all kind of knew was there. Um, we all were kind of saying it, mumbling it between our friends, 
but it, it really was never exposed until Trump came along. And I think that's why he had, he's created such a powerful movement. And I'll end with this. You know, I know this is about a week old news, but what in the world is going on in the Biden family when the president of the United States son has him in his cell phone as pedo Pete? Y'all have a good one. That's kind of weird. I mean, you know, that is kind of weird. There are a lot of things that are weird about that relationship. But once again, as a father, I, I'm hesitant to go there. I mean, I, you know, you, I mean, people have told me before, and I'll agree with this. Once the president involved his son and his family affairs, and I'm talking about the political gains, the, the political transacting of business, the peddling of influence. Um, I'm sorry, but but you know, being a drug addict doesn't give him, you know, being the kid of the president doesn't give him cover for that. It's a little bit like I'll give an example. I think you'd, you'd appreciate this story. Kahaley and I were talking one day about my daughter. My daughter was involved in in my campaign, and my daughter said, I'm Libyard, and I approve this message. And Robert wanted her to do a lot more. And my wife was comfortable up to a point. Well, I mean, I think if your daughter becomes a part of your political dynasty, so to speak, and I'm talking about the Biden, certainly not me, but, but if your kid benefits from you being in office, and I'm not talking about, you know, um, gets a special parking place at the football game. Uh, we don't think that's fair, but that doesn't really drive us crazy as, you know, the next thing you know, a drug addict um, is sitting on the board of a, uh, a foreign oil company. None of that makes any sense except when you say, well, that's the son of a senator or a vice president or a president. I think it's unforgivable. And I think everything's fair game then. I think his drug addiction is sad. It's a human tragedy. And, and we would leave it alone if you, Joe, didn't decide to allow him to personally benefit from you being a senator, a vice president, and now a president. So I think everything's fair game. And I think there are a lot of um there are a lot of qualities about that relationship that you gotta question, you know, the big guy's judgment. And not just allowing his son to advantage himself, but potentially exposing his kid to those sorts of things. It's it's almost like, you know, the rules apply here, but they don't apply over there. Well, and I hate to bring up the what about isms or whatever, but if these things, this evidence that's coming out were Donald Jr., Eric Trump. Can you imagine how important it would be to the mainstream media? But, but the caller touched on something that I think is so interesting. I mean, he said that, that he kind of always knew his professors were liberal, but they didn't impose that view. They didn't force him. Uh, they didn't, you know, relegate his way of thinking to um, Neanderthal or cavemanish or why would you even think something as silly as that? That's the Obama factor. Now, and I've said it before and I'll stand by it. Obama made me feel like not a political adversary, but somebody that had to be dealt with. And I think that's been the, the evolution of the last, what, 12, 15 years in American politics that not only was, was did I hold a disagreeable position, but I was a threat. Yeah. I mean, I was to be punished for it and I had to be punished for it. And if that meant, um, and it kind of liberated some of the college professors who were liberal It liberated some of the media, Obama basically gave them the green light to go after people. And I think, I mean, I think the caller is exactly right. Nobody believes the media is conservative. Nobody believes academia is conservative, but there was a, a certain level of respect that they had for that job, that position of authority. Um, I would argue that 90% of the newsroom at the New York Times are liberal. But but 25 years ago, um, yeah, the story had a liberal bias, but it wasn't a tack job. I mean, do you really believe that 25 years ago, the, the New York Times would have taken a pass 
on Joe Biden and his son and this laptop story. No, there was some journalistic integrity that had to be in place. We've got to cover this. I mean, we hate Trump. We hate Trump as much as anybody, but we've got a job to do. Obama said, yeah, you've got a job to do, but the first thing you need to do is beat the conservatives. Stop them from winning elections. And and I think he was such a charismatic, transformative political figure that, that a lot of people wanted to be a part of that. I don't want to say it's Camelot, but it was something like Camelot. People wanted to be associated. Here's the first African-American president. And what did Biden say? He's articulate and he's clean. That's not me. That's Biden. That's your current president saying about your former president. He's a clean, well-cut, you know, well-spoken black guy. What does dog whistle for? You know, mostly they're not. Now, if a conservative said that, you know what? I mean, you're, you're done. I mean, you don't ever get to play again. Never get to play again. Keep you in chains. I mean, if a conservative says something that crazy, you never get. But, but once again, the tenor of the conversation change. And Obama, whether he said this or not, Obama inferred these people have to be dealt with, that they're clinging to their God and their guns, and they'll never allow this movement to do the good that I know it could do. So let's deal with them in a very different way. And we never adjusted. The Mitt Romneys of the world, the John McCain's of the world refused to accept that as the new normal. And along comes Trump and Trump says, look, they are a bulldozer. They will run over anything in their way, and we better stand tall. We better be willing to dig in, get a little dirt under our fingernails, blood on our knuckles, because the fight is coming our way. And I think a lot of the Trump army, so to speak, have bought into that philosophy. This is not a time for moderation, not a time for compromise. This is a time where someone will be declared the winner and someone will be declared the loser. And Romney was comfortable being declared a loser if he was respected as a statesman. That's just, that's bad, bad strategy. <laughs> Trump says, I'll fight. No question about it. And Trump got it right. And we better understand this is no time for compromise, no time for moderation. This is a time to win. And it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be unlike most political um, periods. Take a break. Back in a minute with some Pepsi to Florence trivia question. It's time for a Pepsi of Florence. Takes Monday to make Friday's trivia question. For, uh, the right answer wins you a six-pack of Pepsi product. Couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt. Here's the question. At a sports field weekend, a lot of Braves, a lot of racing. That's some golf that I paid attention to. The Open Championship was won by Aussie Cam Smith. Rory McIlroy looked to be poised to win. Didn't. I don't watch a lot of golf, but I do watch the majors. What is the name of the trophy? given to the winner of the former British Open, now known as simply the Open Championship. What is the name of the trophy given to the person, the golfer, who wins the Open Championship? 843-661-0937. First caller to correctly identify the name of the trophy. Wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts, courtesy of our good friends and sponsor, Pepsi of Florence. Must be a difficult one today. Okay. Do we have a call? Uh, here comes one okay. right now. Hey, you're on the air. You know the answer? Yes, Claret Jug. You're right. Who is this and where are you calling from? Diane from Bishopville. Okay. Thank you, Diane, for calling. Congratulations. Hold on just a few seconds and we'll get you back to Freehold. The Claret Jug is given to the champion golfer of the Open Championship. Hmm. Kind of interesting. Golf has a brouhaha on its hands with the LIV players and the PGA players. Uh, if you're on a tax-exempt 
you know, monopoly. You probably don't like when somebody else brings about competition. Thanks to Pepsi of Florence, for whatever reason, they stick with us through thick and thin. But the Claret Jug is the uh, is the answer. We'll talk tomorrow.